Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Wow, this is serious stuff here. Good morning, everybody. That video you're looking at, it's coming out of Lake Tahoe. This happened over the weekend. A very powerful storm hits the west. We're going to get to all of that this morning. But did you guys have a great weekend? Well, last I night nobody was, was on that ski lift. Yeah, but yeah. We're gonna, <laughs> that's true. We're going to get to that. But we had a big night last night. CNN Heroes. Yeah. Always makes you feel better about the world. Yeah. And we have a special guest at the end of the show. Me? <laughs> we'll find out. My heroes, right here. <laughs> we'll talk. You, it was a beautiful, beautiful yeah. night. You want to, you want to meet the guests that's coming up. We got to get to the news this morning. A major storm is bringing heavy snow and rain to millions, and could bring possible tornadoes. Where there are blizzard conditions, where is it headed next? Chad Meyer standing by in the CNN Weather Center. Also, just five days left to fund the government. <laughs> we'll tell you what the sticking points are this morning. And he's only been out of prison in the United States for a matter of days. But now the convicted Russian arms dealer, Victor Boot, says if he was given the chance, he would volunteer to fight in Putin's war in Ukraine. But right now we do begin with that massive storm marching across the country right now. More than 15 million people, 14 states are under winter weather alerts this morning. Craziness. It's crazy out there. Be careful. It's slippery. Coming up. Definitely be careful. It's slippery. Um, even in my car, I've slid a few times. They get bad. They get bad sometimes, really bad. You should know that storm has already dumped up to five feet of snow, five feet in Northern California, and soaked the southern half with up to seven inches of rain in some places and is headed east. Depending on what part of the country you're in right now, you could see a blizzard, you could see torrential rain, you could see hail, damaging winds, possible tornadoes within the next few days. We want to get straight now to CNN's meteorologist Chad Myers. Chad, good morning to you. Uh, this is morning, serious Tom. stuff. Where are you seeing the biggest it threat is. right now? Well, you know, the biggest threat for the next couple of days will be the blizzard conditions across the Western Plains. And then by the time we work our way into Tuesday afternoon, the potential, as you said, for tornadoes and some of them big tornadoes, too. This is almost a spring type system to the south, but a major snow event across parts of the Rockies. You said five feet of snow in Soda Springs. And it snowed overnight, and it's still snowing. So those numbers are going to go up. Snowing in the Wasatch, snowing in the Colorado Rockies, all the way across Kansas. This is how the storm marches. The winter part here, the stormy, the severe weather part, down to the south in the warmer air. Almost a hybrid-type system here where we have so much severe weather popping up for tomorrow and then so much snow with the blizzard-like conditions on the north. Not unusual but very, very big in its own way. Wait till you see how much rainfall and snow spreads across the country this week. It is all the way from Georgia and still raining in LA right now. There is the severe weather for today. Here's the severe weather for tomorrow. Here's the accumulating precipitation from Georgia then all of a sudden Nebraska's changing all to snow and then snow all west of there in the cold. But look how much Precip comes down with this storm, Don. Mm, a lot. Chad, we'll continue yeah. to check in with you. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. You bet.
Well, the clock is ticking this morning in Washington as Congress finds itself once again with just days left, five days to be exact, to fund the government, keep it up and running, do their job and avoid the latest Republican threat to shut it down. Democrats are looking to seal the deal on a full year spending plan, while Republicans, uh, many of them are trying to buy time until they take over the House in January. Outsiders uh, weighing in very prominent names on Wall Street who know what a government shutdown means for the economy, like J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, who says Congress should figure out a way to fund the government and iron this all out. Listen to him this weekend. They, they should, because the catastrophic effects of an, of an actual default, mm -hmm. not the debates, I understand both sides, why they want to, how they want to use it, is that's catastrophic. Or, or potentially catastrophic. I would never take that risk. So if, for me, yes, I'd get it done now. Take, take it off the table. Yeah, Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill. I mean, he's absolutely right. If, you know, business leaders ran their business the way Congress is deciding to run this right now, they would never, you know, remain as CEO. Why should we be on the brink like we were in, you know, 2011? Well, Poppy, this morning after these weekend negotiations, lawmakers moving forward but still not there on any agreement on this government spending deal. And the deadline is Friday. They are still about $25 billion apart. That sounds like a lot of money. It really is just chump change when you're talking about the U.S. government budget. But it is significant because it is where they've been for several weeks. Right now, lawmakers are probably going to have to pass a short-term spending deal just to give themselves a little more time to try to continue these negotiations. But right now they are really running out of options, Poppy. And like you said, this is not the way most Americans, this is not the way most business leaders do business. Can you explain what happens Friday if nothing happens? If the, I know there's a talk about a continuing resolution or a short term sort of fill the gap. But what if what if the sides are two at odds and nothing happens? Well, right now, what we've heard from sources that I'm talking to over the weekend is that they are making some progress. They do feel like they are going to be able to come to some agreement to at least pass that short-term spending bill. But after that, their options really are to try to find an agreement that has been elusive thus far or to spend the government spending the same way they've done for the last year. And the reason that that could become a problem is, A, that's not the White House's preference because they have all levers of government right now. They want to be able to set these funding levels how mm -hmm. Democrats want them. But obviously, Poppy, it is a major question whether they're going to be able to accomplish that before the holidays. Let's hope so. Lauren Fox, thank you. And now this. That's President Biden confirming that he did speak with Ukrainian President Zelensky yesterday. The White House saying afterward that the president emphasized the U.S. would prioritize strengthening Ukraine's air defense systems. This all comes as four Ukrainian strikes hit the Russian-occupied city of Melitopol yesterday, killing two, injuring 10. CNN's Fred, Pre Fred Pleiken is live in Berlin. And Fred, I know there's been a lot of conversations that Zelensky's been having with world leaders yesterday. He spoke with President Biden, obviously the leaders of Turkey and France as well. Now he's getting ready to virtually take part in this G7 meeting today. What's the context of all of this? Because it seems to be coming as there's a focus on what the aid is looking like, but peace talks still appear pretty far off. 
they, they do, uh, Caitlin, appear pretty far off, but it's certainly something where at least uh, all sides seem to agree that some sort of peace talks at some point are going to have to happen. But of course, the U.S. and others are saying that, first of all, the Ukrainians need to win as much territory back as possible. And that also seems to be part of what the president talked about yesterday with Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky thanking the president for that next installment of the security assistance, $275 million this time. The sort of key items in that were additional ammunition for HIMARS, uh, those very effective multiple rocket launching systems, and then also about 80,000 additional rounds of 155 millimeter artillery shells. So that's also something just to keep Ukraine in that fight and help them to continue to win back some of their territory. One of the other things that the Ukrainians also thanked the U.S. for uh, was humanitarian assistance, but also assistance to try and get their power grid back up and running after those massive Russian strikes that have been continuing for months now, Zelensky telling the U.S. president that so far about 50 percent of Ukraine's energy infrastructure has been hit. Obviously, the Ukrainians are saying that needs to constantly be repaired. It's a big task. The U.S. helping in any way it can, Caitlin. And Fred, as all of this is going on, we're also hearing from Victor Boot. You know, he's back in Russia. We saw him getting off the plane after that swap mm. with Brittany Griner happened. He's been speaking out. He talked about endorsing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What else is he saying? Yeah, he pretty much said everything that Vladimir Putin wanted to hear. You know, there were so many people who were asking why this, uh, this guy was so important to Vladimir Putin. Certainly, he has been parroting a lot of the lines that Vladimir Putin uh, was also using. He did say that he wholeheartedly supports the invasion uh, of Ukraine, obviously what the Russians call their special military operation. He also said that he believes that it should have started much sooner. And that's actually exactly what Vladimir Putin said about a week earlier, where he said he believed that uh, the annexation of Donbass should have happened a lot earlier than it actually did. Victor Boot also saying that if he could have, that he would have volunteered for Russia's invasion of Ukraine if he had the skills to do so. So he's basically saying everything that Vladimir Putin would like to hear, Caitlin. Yeah, not surprising. Fred, thank you. It is the second deadliest terror attack for Americans after 9-11. And this morning, one of the men the U.S. says is responsible is finally facing some justice. 34 years after Pan Am Flight 103 exploded over the tiny village of Lockerbie, Scotland, the alleged bomb maker is in U.S. custody now. The attack killed all 259 people on board that flight bound for New York, most of them Americans headed home for Christmas. The U.S. first charged him two years ago while he was already in custody in Libya for unrelated crimes. Prosecutors say he traveled to Malta, where he met two other Libyan intelligence agents and delivered the suitcase used to carry out the attack, admitting that, quote, he was instructed to set the timer on the device in the suitcase so that the explosion would occur exactly 11 hours later. Let's discuss now the timing in all of this is interesting. It's anniversary. CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, joins us now. He spent time in Lockerbie after the bombing. Um, so thank you for joining us. We appreciate this. Tell us about uh, the suspect is Abu Aguila Masood, right? So tell us about the suspect, how investigators were able to get him. So he is the missing link in this case. Uh, after McGrahi was released, you know, families were very upset. McGrahi was released from prison after his uh, basically life sentence uh, because he had cancer sent home. And uh, he was said to have three months to live. He lingered for another three years in a villa surrounded by his family. Uh, so the families have been looking for what is the rest of this justice. Masood may be that. He is pretty much the expert bomb maker for the 
Muammar Gaddafi's Libyan intelligence agency. And when you look at the fact that he traveled to Malta where the bomb was placed um, on, on the, the process to get on the plane, uh, that he left the day before the Lockerbie bombing, that there's a witness who can describe his role, that his fingerprints are on the boarding card that was recovered. There's a very strong case against him. I was really, in, I mean, 34 years later, as you said, I was really interested because the reporting that I read didn't have any detail on how they were able to get him extradited. Well, Libya, of course, has been a, a very fragmented country since Gaddafi's fall. Um, he was captured by militia groups. Um, he was held and put on trial by the provisional government after, with really Gaddafi's command staff of his intelligence agencies, which committed all kinds of atrocities during that regime, he was very much a background figure. A documentary maker named Ken Dornstein, whose brother died on Pan Am Flight 103, went back to Libya after the fall of Gaddafi, through Switzerland, where the guy who made the little circuit board uh, that controlled the timing of the board, uh, the bomb, then uh, over to Germany, where German, East German intelligence mm. had kept intelligence files on the bombers' movements there. Uh, then through Libya, where he found contacts who were formerly with the intelligence service. And he put a lot of this together, actually matching FBI records that had become public, CIA records that had become public, and then pushed the puzzle pieces back at federal authorities and said, these are the missing pieces, and they've moved forward with the case. But can I quickly ask you, is this confession something that could actually be admissible so that's not ideal when a defense lawyer in a U.S. court goes at a confession extracted uh, by Libyans in a very, how do you say it politely, uncertain justice system after the fall of Gaddafi. Uh, but when you take all the other evidence that, that was put together way back in 1988, the boarding pass that shows he went to Malta, his fingerprint on it, the fact that he left right after the bomb was placed, the fact that he was the intelligence service's main technical expert on bomb making, there's a lot more to the confession, plus a couple of live witnesses from the Libyan side who can string those things together. Wow. Yeah. And it's interesting, Papa, you'd be interested in this, the what? economic fallout from Lockerbie because it ushered oh, yeah. in the end of Pan Am, which we had the Pan Am right. building. Then the Pan Am building became the RCA building, and then the RCA became the GE building, and then the Comcast. But the economic fallout, the end of an airlines, it, the, it, what it did on industry. I mean, obviously the family's hurting, but that was a huge ripple effect from it, Lockerbie. It also had, in the pre-9-11 world, which we thought is what wrote, rewrote the book on airline security, yeah. a tremendous effect on how we got onto an airplane mm -hmm. and how cargo got onto an airplane after that. That was a massive plastic explosive bomb. I say massive in terms of power probably uh, 15 pounds of plastic explosives hidden inside a Toshiba boombox that was flying in cargo with an electronic timer that could be set 24 hours ahead. I just hope some, uh, some peace and some justice for these families. I mean, they've been waiting so long. John, thank you thank very, you. very much, John Miller. We have a lot still ahead this hour. Uh, why the Biden White House apparently isn't that worried about what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter, even though some Democrats are much more concerned, plus this. If Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. <laughs> Not to mention, they would have been armed. Oh boy. Sitting Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, they're suggesting she would have run, she would have won the insurrection by being armed. We have a lot to talk about. That's next.
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I just want to say something in that last segment. I confused the Rockefeller Center with the Pan Am building. I just realized that. I was out late last night, Heroes. Sorry, a little groggy this morning. So let's move on. Let's talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. In a world of lies, conspiracies, and divisive rhetoric, it is sometimes a tough call on which ones to give oxygen to and which ones to ignore. But this morning, a sitting U.S. congresswoman suggests that if she had been in charge of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the crowds would have been armed and they would have, quote, won the insurrection. Speaking at an event hosted by the New York Young Republican Club, Marjorie Taylor Greene said this. Watch. insurrection tours, which I thought was hilarious because I couldn't even find the bathroom in the Capitol. True story. Then January 6th happens, and next thing you know, I organized the whole thing along with Steve Bannon here. And I want to tell you something. If Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. Not to mention, it would have been armed. See, that's the whole joke, isn't it? They say that whole thing was planned, and I'm like, are you kidding me? A bunch of conservatives, Second Amendment supporters went in the Capitol without guns, and they think that we organized that? I don't think so. Well, those are interesting comments, to say the least, considering how she felt during the attack. Green messaged White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and I quote here, please tell the president to calm people. This isn't the way to solve anything. Publicly, of course, a different tune. Just a week and a half later, she pushed Meadows to stage a coup, getting the military involved so that Trump could stay in power. Quote, in our private chat with only members, several are saying the only way to save our republic is for Trump to call for martial law. She spelled it incorrectly there. She justified that request by perpetuating the lie that led to the violence at the Capitol in the first place, writing, they stole this election. We all know they will destroy our country next. Caitlin? Well, Don, let's talk about more of this with CNN's senior political analyst and author of Wingnuts, John Avalon, and CNN political commentator Errol Lewis, who is a columnist for New York Magazine and the host of You Decide podcast. One... They did bring weapons to the Capitol mm-hmm. on January 6th, correct? Yeah. They're saying, what, what, what this congresswoman is saying is that they were insufficiently armed, right? And, and, and she was playing to the crowd, but what she's basically saying is what we've been pointing out. Without accountability, uh, in, failed insurrections are just practice. She's saying that they would have succeeded and they would have come armed. And that's a statement with real weight if you're a member of Congress. That's an endorsement of, of violent sedition. Like, make no mistake about it. Sure. And these, uh, it would have been illegal to even bring weapons into the district, as she no doubt knows. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's the kind of thing where, in the name of being cute in front of uh, the donors or whatever group she was, she was addressing, she could talk herself into a grand jury. I mean, this is not uh, stuff to take lightly. Um, this is a country that's on, its, on the edge in a lot of ways. And if she really means this... You know, she should really repeat it under oath. I'd, I'd love to hear it. It's problematic for, I would say, for Republicans. And it's problematic, especially considering where Kevin McCarthy is right now, trying to, you know, become the leader. I mean, what does he do about this? And, and does this affect any of that? 
Well, she's, look, uh, the, the, the central problem for American politics, and has been true for a number of years, is what to do about these kind of extremists. Not just the statements, but the actions, the undermining of institutions, the undermining of elections, and faith in those elections. So if, if he can figure that out, he'll have a very successful speakership. Uh, I don't know that he can. I don't know that he can contain her. When people are going to say crazy things, you know, for money or for attention or for some combination of both, or in fact, because they believe it, you know, he's going to have to decide who, who gets the gavel, who doesn't, who gets the chairmanship, who doesn't, how much he's willing to fight with these people. Um, it, 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 he's got the same problem as the rest of us. What do you do about the extremists? Yeah, and, and it's, it's more difficult because he's trying to thread the needle uh, with, with, with majority support. But, you know, let's be real clear about this. For all those Republicans who pretended, you know, this was just a bad tourism day. Nothing really happened. What Marjorie Taylor Greene just said, the quiet part out loud, as she is wont to do, is... Uh, if we'd been organizing it, we would have been successful. Successful in what? Overturning an election, our democracy. And why? Because we would have been armed. Mm. You, this is all actually boils down to also um, the dangerous division, to say mm-hmm. the least, in this country. And you have some really interesting new data that actually should make us hopeful. Yes. Really? Thank you. <laughs> you know, you're welcome. Enlighten us. What? <laughs> Look, I, I do think it's important to keep perspective, right? We need to create a sense of context. We've seen how schools, our schools, have become front lines in the culture wars. They're used to divide us. We've seen that be a primary campaign tactic. Well, there's a fascinating new study by a group called More in Common about diffusing the history wars. And what they show is a lot of these divisions are exaggerated. They reflect what they call perception gaps, particularly along partisan lines when it comes to the teaching of American history. Let me show you just one example. Um, for example... Uh, the statement, all students should learn about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and how it advanced freedom and equality. 92% of Democrats agree with that statement, but only 45% of Republicans think Democrats support that view. On the flip side, by the way, take a look at this statement. It's important that every American student learn about slavery, Jim Crow, and segregation. This is the heart of the issue of so-called CRT yeah, yeah. panic. Well, Critical 80, race theory. Critical race theory, thank you. 83% of Republicans agree with that. But only 51% of Democrats think Republicans do. The takeaway is there's a perception gap in our politics that doesn't necessarily reflect reality. And that's something that we need to but, focus on. And Errol, you have made this point that I think is so appropriate here, that there some people have a vested interest mm-hmm. in making sure that Americans don't act on that information. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a whole range of uh, consultants and donors, and there's a lot of money at stake in trying to make sure that what you just showed is not perceived by people, that people think the other side is evil. It's one, you know, you, you can raise a little bit of money if, if somebody's got uh, the same point of view as you. You can raise a lot more if you can convince them that the other side is evil, dangerous, and a threat to the country. That's where the money really starts to roll in. And, and, and it's unfortunate because you have media organizations that do it. You have, uh, you have consultants who do it. You have politicians who follow along, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and the next thing you know... Uh, we have a truly divided nation, in part because people are being misled. And, and why is that dangerous? Why is it so important to confront this? Is because, look, America's the only nation in the history of the world founded on an idea, mm-hmm. not a tribal identity. Mm-hmm. And that means we are uniquely dependent upon unifying stories about who we are as a nation. That's why we need to be teaching history. We need to be teaching civic education. And what this study shows is that we can do this in a way without letting the extremes determine the agenda. They don't represent us. I think... Go on. I think... You hit, but we didn't talk enough about it. What? I think it's media literacy. 
Mm -hmm. Because I think people, what you're saying, as I'm listening here, is that we don't know each other. We don't sit down and actually mm -hmm. talk to each other. Mm -hmm. We don't, you know, go to breakfast or dinner or whatever, that people sort of hang out with the people they know all the time, they're familiar with. That are like us. That are like us. And so we don't, and so people have, I can only, in context of me and probably you and you, people think that I am in the character or the caricature that they see mm -hmm. on Fox News. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when they actually meet me, they're like, well, you're not at all that mm -hmm. person. Because... They're getting their information about other people through the media. And I think that is a problem. And when, if you want, um, you know, when politicians come on here or other, they want to own the libs. Mm -hmm. So as soon as they finish an interview here, they go to the conservative media and they say, I own that guy on, on CNN. And then they go and they fundraise on That's it. That's it. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, and, and they are contributing to the, so it's the politicians and quite frankly, the media that contribute to the partisan divide. It happens on the left, mm -hmm. but not nearly as much as it happens on the right. There's more anger on the right and more the big media, the establishment, they are against us. Again, it does happen on both sides, but pretty much it's, am I wrong? Do you guys think I'm wrong about but that? I mean, no. I, 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 it's interesting. I get inundated, I'm sure all of us do, with all kinds of, you know, sort of partisan fundraising appeals. You know, right. you sort of have to get into that system just for, for news gathering purposes. Uh, and you never see anything saying, here's me with my arm around somebody of the opposite party. Please send $50, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, just, it's just what you're saying. It's like, you should have seen the way I cracked down on them and the, the horrible yep. things that I said and the extremist statements that I made, and it was and it, it showed up on Remember television. Remember Charlie, Chris, and Obama, bucks. I think, the hug? Was the that hug. them? It was, and it was, no, no, uh, it was uh, um, Chris Christie. Chris Christie. Yeah, Sorry, was, Mike Chris, you know, yeah, misses and, 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 but, but, right? but that's what we got to push against. And I think also reminding folks about all our interesting differences. One of my favorite Don Lemons and the multiplicity <laughs> of you is, is young Reagan Republican, Reagan supporting uh, Don Lemon on a college campus in the South in the yeah. 1980s. And then I grew up. And then you grew up. <laughs> but you know what? But, but hold on. First of all, not atypical for young college students the time. Reagan did very right. well with young voters. And it just yeah. speaks to the essential diversity of our experience. We're much more interesting when we take the time to get to know each other. Yeah. I looked that, that what happened with me with that was with the whole stance. I on need to AIDS. look this. I don't yeah, understand. And then I was I like, I'm out. This. I got you. And then it, I, it sort of woke me up. But it was kind of fun to be part of something that felt different. And folks probably don't know that about yeah. you as much. Yeah. I think so. John go. just told everybody yeah. that it's about. He's, he's, he's been public about it. You know. But the, but the, it's also about the, you said like, Landed oh, on an idea. I'm but it was at, Charlie Chris as well. There was a hug. I'm just when trying a hug to prove, becomes a kiss I'm trying to prove oh, myself. <laughs> I'm like, I know it's early, but I really think this happened. But anyway, my yes, more but, serious point, yeah. the American experiment. Yeah. That's it. Talk to each other. Not I, I'm not going to promote my book, but that's what my book said, John. We've this got did. to. This we've is got the fire. To, what, what I say to my friends about racism. So and good. Even like Republican friends, everyone. We are a little loopy, guys, because we were up for heroes. So Speak anyways, for yourself. Yeah, I'm a little loopy, and I also took an ambient, by the way. What? <laughs> I got before the show last night. Last night. <laughs> Should we go, Caitlin? Should we go to commercial? Yes. Want some coffee? I think the audience is begging us to. John Avalon, Airless. A really good conversation. Bye, guys. So thank you both. All right, this morning, the effects of Hurricane Ian delivering a crushing blow to Florida, Florida's bee population. Of course, remember that storm, we covered it here closely. We'll also take a closer <clears throat> look at these bees and their fight for survival and actually what it means for you in the global food chain. Yeah, you'll want to see this. Also, new warnings this morning from Idaho police following the murder of four college students. Why they are now telling everyone to travel in groups. We'll have a live report from Moscow in just a few minutes. Is this story ever going to it's so sad. 
that New York City this morning. Welcome back to CNN This Morning, everyone. Here's what's coming up. Hurricane Ian ripped through Florida and damaged a whole lot of properties, including thousands of bee colonies. Plus, how concerned is the White House since Elon Musk took over Twitter? They say that they're not stressed. But how are other Democrats reacting? We'll talk about that. And remembering soccer journalist and friend, Grant Wall. Grant Wall died at the World Cup. How colleagues are honoring him this morning. We reported that, of course, on Hurricane Ian. But here's something you didn't really hear about. When the storm smashed into central Florida, it took out hundreds of thousands of bee colonies and wiped out a vital link in our food chain. Well, now beekeepers are still struggling from these losses. Our Bill Weir met with some of them, and he joins us now. I never thought about this. Me neither. However... I know bees are very important to the whole ecosystem. More than ever. When we talk, uh, when we have the birds and the bees talk, <laughs> it takes on a whole new importance yeah. now because one out of every three bites of food is courtesy of a pollinator, like a bee wow. or a butterfly. And they're in deep trouble as a result of sort of colliding climate crises. I went down to Arcadia, Florida to get a state of things. These guys know the state of agriculture better than ever. Anyone really? And few are sadder and more worried. Take a mm. look. Now you gotta get a handful of bees. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm not usually in the habit of accepting a handful of stinging insects, but Keith Council has a 40 year professional relationship with honeybees. And you never, rarely wear a veil or gloves or anything. Don't really need to. And these days, they need all the love they can get. Hurricane Ian arrived at the worst possible time for this business, just as beekeepers from around the country were set up to catch the autumn bloom of the Brazilian pepper tree. Whole yard went under. The storm drowned and crushed hundreds of thousands of hives, killing countless millions of bees. It's gone, we have to come back. There ain't nothing left. You could actually see a water line where it came up to here and because Ian blew away so much vegetation, those that survived are starving. Some of these bees have gotten three shots of feed and that's a gallon. So you're talking about 36 pounds of feed already and you can still go back after they suck the feed down and it looks like they never were fed at all. They're just starving. They're just starving, yeah, it's nonstop. So it's just an added cost and you're just trying to do the best. You have to make that tough decision of, really, is it worth the money, uh, the financial cost to try to save it? or do you just have to walk away and, and take your medicine? This is all bee food. This will be uh, used uh, for liquid bee food, yep. At Man Lake Bee and Ag Supply, they're mixing sugar water as fast as they can. And while some bee farmers file for federal relief, the Greater Good Charity is giving away a quarter ton of pollen substitute. Where we have donated meals to food pantries for humans, we've donated animal supplies to animal shelters, and now we're donating this bee pollen substitute to these farmers here. Can't forget the bottom of the food chain, right? <laughs> Can't forget what helps get all the other food uh, to, to the table as well. But even if their bees recover, the whole business depends on the health of the almond crop in California, now shrinking under mega drought. If the drought takes out the almond crop in California, that the whole beekeeping industry is going to be in trouble. And, and there's no feral bees. There's no wild bees can't survive on their own. He explains that pesticides, development and invasive pests have made it impossible for bees to survive without deliberate human care. And if all the beekeepers released all of their bees, Every beekeeper in the country, if they just released all their bees into the wild, we estimate it'd be about two to three years 
before bees would just collapse. Bees are the most important farmer. They're the most forgotten as well. And that's why we just need the entire public to really continue to get involved in bees. And a little two beehives makes a big impact. They went totally underwater, somehow made it. In the meantime, all Keith can do is pick up the pieces and focus on the survivors, like the hive he found drowned inside a water meter box near Fort Myers Beach. It's a different feeling when you have bees walking all it over really you. It really is, it really yeah. is. And nobody's getting stung. No. You know, they're doing their thing. Maybe they can sense uh, we're rooting for them, you know? Well, and that's... We appreciate them. That's part of the thing. You have to, you have to treat them with respect. When you get down to it, the bees are the pillars to all agriculture, and that they're the pillars to our whole civilization. Of course, he's a trained beekeeper. Don't try that at home, <laughs> reaching into a hive. But no stings. They're completely wow. chill, as long as we were. I brought you some old Florida Bee Company honey. Okay. Orange blossom and, and Florida palmetto I here. From down there, this is Jeremy Ham's company. You saw him in the piece there. I got you some, Don, Caitlin. <laughs> They're cutting two jars over there. There's I got a third stuff. jar for you guys. You can fight over the cinnamon spread. That's the best. But really, I mean, that's the thing that scared me is that we're now in a place where bees can't live without us. And we can't live without bees. So we got to do something so better. So you got to pay attention to what's happening to those little busy business partners. Busy. I was telling Bill, guys, in the break that this is like what I give to my kids whenever they're sick or under the weather. Like It's like this natural healer. It's good for anything. allergies. It's an anti-inflammatory. It's uh, and, and they're keeping Thank us alive. You, We're feeding them. They're feeding us. Thank and you, it Bill. tastes good. And it tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> As a bonus. <laughs> a spoon of honey for you in the break. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Thanks, Bill. You got it. I guess that's, that's me. So up next, we're going to talk about this, the chilly reception that Elon Musk received from the crowd at a Dave Chappelle show. You don't want to miss that. Also, new CNN reporting that the new special counsel is moving very fast on two criminal investigations surrounding former President Trump. We'll tell you more next. I love that New reporting this morning that President Biden and his White House don't seem to have the same concerns about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter as many in the Democratic Party do. It comes from Semaphore, the new digital media startup. And so joining us now is Ben Smith, the site's editor-in-chief, who is formerly of BuzzFeed, Politico, and the influential media column at The New York Times. Now that we've made it through your resume, this reporting <laughs> is, is really interesting because this is something that is constantly being talked about on Capitol Hill Lawmakers are asked about it almost every day. We've talked to many of them about it here on the show. But it seems to fit with the Biden campaign ethos, which was basically in two words, ignore Twitter. And now they seem to be ignoring Twitter's new owner. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for pointing out that I cannot hold a job. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the, yeah, I mean, I think what's, what's so interesting is right now, I think a lot of Democrats are very freaked out that Elon Musk, you know, richest man in the world, buys this powerful platform for speech. And just he's immediately tweeting all sorts of just kind of far right jokes and in-jokes, in theories. Um, and the White House doesn't, I think, just isn't that focused on it. I mean, Biden became president in part by telling his staff, ignore Twitter. Twitter represents not the right, but Twitter represents the, the left of his party. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gets all the retweets. Joe Biden doesn't. And I think one of the 
reasons he won his primary was by realizing that there were many, many voters who were, you know, less online, older, less educated, more diverse than the group of people on Twitter, and that those were the people who would vote for him. And so I think he's just as happy to have Twitter turn into something else and for, the de- for Democrats to ignore it. This, go ahead. Were you going to say something? No, it's just fascinating yeah. because yeah. it does have real world implications. And the danger of the spreading of misinformation and that can lead to real violence. But it, but it makes me think of what you always say. I always say that Twitter is not real life and we sort of over-index that. And I, th- I think the smartest thing that the Biden administration did or when he was running, it's not the administration, the Biden campaign did, was ignore the fringes of their party, as you pointed out. Um, because it's, I always say it's the lady in, ladies in church hats who actually go to the polls, right? And it's the guys who, with the lunchbox, who actually go to the polls and vote and not necessarily the people on Twitter. So he ignored it. Trump did the opposite mm. and leaned into the extremes of his party and the people on Twitter. And he lost. Biden won. I think it's a smart strategy. I think they're right on. Yeah, and what they told us is, that, you know, in their internal meetings, they think about television, they think about Facebook, yeah. and that those are the places where, as you say, the you know people, where a lot of working people are getting their news. Yeah. I mean, that said, the people who are on Twitter are us, and the thing they, that the White House uses Twitter for is to work journalists and to try to persuade us of what yes. to say, what to write about. The question, though, for this is: is ignoring what's being said on Twitter in the conversation the same as ignoring who's running Twitter and the implications of that? I don't know if those two are the same exact things. No, and I, don't, I mean, I don't think they're particular fans of Musk. I think they just don't see it as, I mean, they see it as a problem in the world, like many problems the White House thinks about, but not as something that really affects, you know, Biden's re-election chances particularly. Speaking of Musk. What? Dave Chappelle. Oh, yeah. Should yeah. we play it? Yeah. Can we, so let's, we should say Dave Chappelle, this was at a comedy arena in San Francisco. Comedian Dave Chappelle brought out Elon Musk on stage and Musk was booed for several minutes. We'll get your response to watch this. Okay, but why? Okay, he has time to go to a Dave Chappelle show. He's like running Twitter. Tesla's mad he's not there enough. But sorry, I digress. Yeah. What do you mean? And, and, and we were—is it booze? I'm, I'm sure some people were happy, to, but did it sound like mostly booze to you. And that was in Silicon Valley. That's his hometown. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know, in a way, it's like the power. I mean, we're talking about you know Joe Biden not caring that much about Twitter. I mean, that actually is the power of Twitter to change how. Elon Musk is seen very, very rapidly. And I think, you know, he's been tweeting essentially a lot of right-wing politics. And so when he shows up in San Francisco at a comedy show, tough reception. Well, not even just right-wing politics. What he tweeted over the weekend, which is the latest thing that he's been under fire for, which, you know, when you talk to some of the people around him, it, it... this, they think this is distracting when he tweets the things that we've been talking about for weeks on the show. But the thing about Fauci saying his pronouns were prosecute Fauci. And now all these lawmakers have been criticizing that as well. And Mark saying. Kelly calling him out. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I you mean, were saying, Scott the Kelly, dangers of misinformation and the dangers of what Twitter can do is it can incite people. 
to towards violence, and it can it all it can also incite people towards um, to it can it to do good things, right? It can encourage people to do good things, but it can incite people to violence, and it can can give out misinformation. But that is a you know public sentiment. You know that's not just people tweeting; that's people saying. Voting with their mouths, going boo. Yeah, I mean, it can definitely Musk. incite people toward booing, apparently, in, the, in this case. And I mean, and I think, right, more broadly, it's, you know, I think you had people managing the platform who were very worried about the things that you just talked about, particularly after January 6th, ban Donald Trump from the pat- platform, ban a sort of a spectrum of people on the right, because I think of their concerns about violence. And Musk is pulling it, is saying, you guys, you went too far, trying to pull it back. There is a, I think there's a reasonable argument going on about free speech, but Musk is, separately, just totally torching his own brand for lots of people who liked him. I, I know we have to go, but let me just say this one thing. We can sit here in America and so because we're, we're privileged when it comes to free speech and we can criticize Twitter and say, oh, it shouldn't do this, it shouldn't do that. But if it goes away, it does have real-world consequences for people who are in countries mm-hmm. without free speech and who use that, so especially like said Iran, that. who use it to get the word out about the you know, mistreatment of women and, and LGBTQ community and so on. So it's important for us. But we're, as Americans, we're like, free speech, you know, what do we do? Take it off, because we have other outlets, but some people, some Come countries don't. Come back for that free speech debate. Anytime. I'm here for it. I think people misunderstand how it applies to a company like Twitter. Thanks for the donuts and the coffee on the first day of the show. That's, that's what we supply. By the way, thank you, Ben. Such a good friend. You. Very much. We appreciate that. Uh, also, uh, inflation still very much here, driving the price of many of the, your Christmas gifts for your kids higher. How folks are able to stretch their dollar this season are reporting next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, inflation is hitting middle-class families really hard just ahead of the holidays. And even though numbers cooled a bit in November with gas prices coming down after record highs, parents are feeling the pressure to provide their kids with a memorable experience this Christmas. CNN's Gabe Cohen has more now. In Hyattsville, Maryland, Anya Remy, an HR professional, is Christmas shopping for her children on a stricter budget than ever before. It's a few items for the kids this year as opposed to getting them all of the things on their list. High inflation has made holiday budgeting a more complicated equation for middle-class families. A November poll found 47% of Americans have less savings than a year ago, and 42% plan to spend less on gifts this season. Only 8% plan to spend more. But up to now, the National Retail Federation says overall holiday spending hasn't slowed. Families are just making sacrifices. Jeanette Duval, a school bus driver, is relying on coupons for the first time. Probably not everybody will have the same quality of gift they used, they used to have. It's a little pinch. Joe Parker says he won't limit spending for his family, just for himself. They're good kids. They do what they're supposed to do, so I'm supposed to fulfill my part. In a new poll, 55% of Americans say rising prices have caused financial hardship for their household. Doesn't take much. Lindsay Cook is one of them. She's a teacher, her husband, a school security officer. Higher prices have forced them to dip into savings the past few months. I'm living paycheck to paycheck, so there's no sort of wiggle room, and it's kind of scary. How has your holiday budget changed? How do you create a budget when you don't have any sort of extra income? She decided to spend no more than $100 for each of her two children. I sense the stress um, in your voice. I don't want to disappoint my kids. I don't want them to be upset. So it's just kind of sad. 
Then there are parents like Carissa Warren. We met her back in March when she could barely afford gas with surging fuel prices. Because if we were to fill our tanks, we wouldn't have enough cash for the rest of the week to cover the rest of our bills for that week. With gas prices down and a raise at work, she felt more secure heading into the holidays. Then came the news. Like many Americans, she's getting laid off from her job. What did that do to your budget? What budget? <laughs> it just kind of blew everything up. Um, now it's like anything extra is out of the question. She's already purchased a few gifts for three-year-old Layla and says that's the end of her holiday shopping. And Layla seems just fine with that. You're still going to have a great Christmas. Right, yeah. I mean, that's at the end of the day, as long as she's happy, we're all happy. Um, we won't have gifts under the tree this year, um, but she will. And so that's all that really matters. Gabe Cohen, CNN. right now this is this is pretty special to watch I mean can you even imagine I can't seriously I mean Tom Brady is 22 years 146 days older than Brock Purdy obviously we know all the accomplishments and he looks like he's been playing the league for 10 years he's just so poised Oh, my gosh. Did you guys? I, I couldn't stop talking about it. You walked in last night. Remember, the hero is on his phone <laughs> watching the end of the game. Was, it was I, amazing. Just yes. like any parent would cry if their son was at, yeah. performing like that in a game against it, Tom Brady. It was amazing uh, to watch. I mean, this guy is, he was a third string. He's a rookie. What do they call it? Um, like, inconsequential when you're like the last. Irre Mr. Like, irrelevant. It was amazing to watch. I could not. Not stop. irrelevant anymore. Not irrelevant anymore. The quarterback, that was a QB quarterback, Brock Purdy. That was his dad getting emotional after his son's touchdown pass. And his debut against Tom Brady. You're going to see uh, a lot of that a little bit later on. We're going to show you the highlights. So we also got to talk about this because more than 50 million people are under winter weather alerts across 14 states. The storm has already dumped up to five feet of snow in Northern California. And now... It's headed east. Plus, what is leading health officials in New York City to once again urge people to mask up, even if they're vaccinated for COVID-19 and the flu? We'll have more on the new recommendations ahead. Also this morning, the new special counsel wasting no time with two criminal probes of Donald Trump. New CNN reporting on just how fast Jack Smith is moving and what it could mean for the former president. But first, we're going to begin with this. We're going to talk about that major storm that's going to sweep across the country. It's going to impact millions of people this week. It is cranking up and headed east. It's already left its calling card in California, up to five feet of snow in the Sierras. This is how Ashley Sharp, this is our affiliate in Sacramento, reported the story to viewers there. Watch this. You can see just how much snow has fallen. Just to give you an idea, I'm about 5'7", and this snow is right at about mid-calf level on me. So lots of snowfall today. We have talked to people out here in Pollock Pines who have said it has caused some issues on the roadways. Our GoPro captured the mess on the roads in Pollock Pines, snow-covered streets impacting the foothills Sunday. Coming up definitely be careful. It's slippery. Um, even in my car, I've slid a few times. Chain controls active Sunday in Pollock Pines and higher in the Sierra, further down Highway 50 and on Interstate 82, where snow dumped over the weekend. The foothills not hit as hard, but yeah. still the yeah. first big well, snow like of the season. We've seen a lot of that slushy, watery mixture on the roadways, which of course is very slippery, but we're also seeing a lot of this very tightly packed in snow that's closer to ice. You can see 
see just how hard this is on the roadway. So of course the message is to take it very slow, especially on those side roads and in things like parking lots here at Safeway to make sure that you're not slipping on the roadways. So more than 15 million people in 14 states are under winter weather alerts this morning. Over the next couple of days, this system could bring a major snowstorm from Colorado to Minnesota and hail strong winds and possible tornadoes to parts of the south. Meanwhile, here in New York City, people are being urged to wear masks indoors and outdoors in crowds, partly to protect them from COVID-19 as cases have been ticking up over the last week. But officials say it's also because of a spike in other seasonal viruses, the flu, RSV, that have been filling up hospitals, as we've been talking about here. CNN's Athena Jones joins us now. So these are recommendations. They're not orders from health officials. But why are they saying people need to start wearing a mask again? Well, this is what uh, New York City health officials are calling an unusually high concurrent spike of these three respiratory uh, illnesses, COVID-19, flu, and RSV, as you, as you noted. So they're sending out this warning because this is the holiday season. People are going to be getting together with their friends, with their families. People want the health officials want people to do that as safely as possible. And so they're suggesting a number of measures that are going to sound familiar to all of us here. Uh, things like limiting attendance at large indoor gatherings, uh, wearing a mask when gathering with others indoors or in outdoor crowds, and uh, wearing a mask and getting a COVID-19 test prior to gathering with other people, and of course staying at home if you feel unwell. And they're saying this is especially important for those who are vulnerable, of course. 65 plus, infants, the immunocompromised, people with underlying health conditions. And they're urging people to use high quality masks. So not just your basic cotton face covering, things like a KN95 mask, KF94, and N95 respirator mask. And I should note that they're talking about people in general, communities and schools. They're urging uh, schools to institute these measures, but they're not mandating anything yet. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of people, a lot more people wearing masks. Me too. I actually put on a coat for the first time since last one and I put it in the pocket. I still, and there was, I still had a mask and I was like, oh, right. But I have to ask you about if there are going to be mandates. We had family come in town this weekend and they were wondering about, should they wear masks? Should, should they not? Is it a possibility of being mandated? You know, I asked the, the um, uh, spokesperson for the mayor last night about this mandate issue. He said it's a recommendation. Uh, it, it's clear no one wants to go back to the battle days of terrible COVID surges, but also a lot of people don't want to go back uh, to masking. In New York, it's, it's different. I think it always has been. I think people in New York were really hit hard early on because it was an early epicenter. And so you saw a lot more people masking and you still see that now, especially on the subway. Yeah. Do you do? Do you mask with the kids and uh, stuff? Sienna asked me to buy her new masks um, because I think she's seeing more kids at school do it. At the con- you know, the concert I ran to on right. Friday, her winter concert, or on Thursday, the teachers asked if you'd be willing. It'd be great if you mask because there was a lot of parents together. So we did. And on the subway, I mean, it's just yeah. like, why would I want to get a cold, even a cold or the flu? It just makes sense. These are respiratory illnesses, and yeah. so you know that masks keep you from getting them. Usually, right. amen. Athena, thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right. The often pretty tight-lipped police in Moscow, Idaho, have offered the rarest of warnings. This happened over the weekend. They urge people to travel in groups. This is because the suspected killer of those four college students is still on the loose, and parents and others are gathering for their winter commencement. Our Camilla Bernal is live in Moscow with the latest. It, I mean, we're all sort of like shaking our heads here on set because it's so hard to understand how this person could still be out there. 
Yeah, it's really hard to understand, but it's the same thing. No suspect, no motive, no weapon. And in terms of the investigation, there's a lot the police are not saying. The one thing, though, they do say is they're getting a lot of new tips. This is all about this new white car information. It really is the biggest development in the case that we've gotten in four weeks. The focus is a white Hyundai Elantra between 2011 and 2013. They believe that car was in this area in the early morning hours of November 13th when these students were killed. And they're getting so many tips that the local police department had to hand it off. And it's now the FBI call center handling all of this. And they believe that whoever was in this car could have critical information for this case. Poppy. Camilla, thank you very much. Let's hope so. President Biden stressing American support for Ukraine as he spoke on a call with President Zelensky on Sunday after the U.S. sent another military aid package to strengthen their air defenses. And in the newest episode of David Letterman's Netflix show, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction, the seasoned host sits down with President Zelensky in war-torn Ukraine. The two bunker down in a subway station 250 feet below the city, the capital city of Kyiv, with an audience in tow. But it wasn't long before they reminded that attacks are still underway. You got to see this. Yes, I can hear the siren. What should we do? Nothing. What was the siren indicating? That is a surreal moment there, and one Ukrainians live under so often. Ukraine appears also this morning to be putting its newly acquired firepower to the test, launching a missile attack on a Russian-occupied community in Zaporizhia that's in southeastern Ukraine. Let's get straight to Will Ripley. He is live in Kiev. And Will, I understand you just spoke to the Ukrainian defense minister. Is that right? Yeah, and you know, Poppy, it is, it is amazing how quickly you can get used to the air raid sirens. As I was going to bed last night, I heard the sirens go off in Odessa in southern Ukraine. And it's one of those things where you look at your phone and if it doesn't say incoming missiles headed your way, you put the phone down and try to get some badly needed sleep, which is in short supply for so many Ukrainians who have been dealing with around the clock uh, attacks by the Russians. In fact, we were in Odessa. Uh, that entire region of more than one and a half million people uh, was essentially plunged into darkness over the weekend because Russia fired Iranian made drones at the power grid and it caused widespread blackouts. And so I started uh, our interview with the Ukrainian defense minister, Oleski Reznikov, talking about just that. What's your best strategy to defend against these kamikaze drone attacks from Russia? Every day, we're trying to find the best solutions. they targeting our infrastructure. They're trying to ruin our energy supply, water supply, heat supply systems, because they cannot to have a success against armed forces of Ukraine. They're trying to fight him with the civilian population. That's why they're trying to, to, to stop the energy or water to the houses, especially during this winter time. Have you been given an explanation why the Patriot missile defense systems have not arrived yet? 
Uh, it's a long discussion with our uh, partners because it's a very sophisticated and expensive systems. Today we have more than eight different systems. And we got HIMARS and we have M270, we have Mars, we have LRU from the France. So I think that uh, Patriot also will be in our battlefield, but in the next stage. Very interesting that he says he's confident that they will have Patriots in what he calls the next stage, a stage that in the coming weeks could likely include Ukrainian counteroffensives. They say because the ground is starting to freeze over, it's going to be easier to move equipment. And so they're ready to start trying to retake territory that has been taken by the Russians, Poppy. Will Ripley, what a great interview. Thank you for being there live from Kiev this morning. All right. The new special counsel who is in charge of the two criminal probes involving former President Trump is barreling ahead in his new role. Jack Smith might still be in Europe recovering from a bike accident. But one month into his new high profile position, he has already brought in several people close to Trump before a grand jury. He's also issued a flurry of subpoenas. CNN's Caitlin Polance joins us live from Washington. Caitlin, what I was struck by in your reporting is that Jack Smith's staff is already nearly twice the size of Bob Mueller's staff, the team, of course, that worked on that Russia probe. Right, Kaylin. So we were trying to get a sense of what this office looks like a few weeks after Smith's appointment. Has the investigation changed? Is it growing? And actually, uh, what we found was it, Smith is stepping in to become a manager of a very, very large team. There's already 20 prosecutors that had been ramped up and were working on the January 6th side of the case. All Many of the prosecutors who are on the Mar-a-Lago case, so those would be a separate team. Those people are also going to be working under Smith. So it is a really big team. Uh, and they're also not starting from scratch. They're doing a lot. And one of the things that we found um, is that there's a financial financial investigation going on that is largely under the radar. It's, it's showed itself a little bit in subpoenas, asking questions about money. But there is a financial investigation that's pretty robust right now. And then the other thing, Caitlin, that that was um, quite surprising and, and maybe obvious just following some of this, but we really wanted to nail down whether it was happening. Uh, there are questions being asked prosecutors are asking witnesses, did what is Donald Trump's knowledge? Was there an exact plan to steal the election and keep him as the president? What was the intent around that? So that focus on Trump uh, really did come out in our reporting. And what happened on Friday with you know the Justice Department, we know, as we reported and talked about, wanted to hold Trump or, or the office of Trump in contempt of court when it comes to the documents investigation, but they got pushback from the judge inside that courtroom. Right. So this was a proceeding that happened entirely beyond, behind closed doors. But what we understand from sources uh, is that at, on Friday, this judge uh, in D.C. did not hold Donald Trump in contempt of court for failing to comply with the subpoena. The Justice Department is clearly unhappy uh, with how things have gone there in that Mar-a-Lago case. Uh, but this is, this is just another uh, point in a series of things that have happened in the Mar-a-Lago investigation and a sign, Caitlin, that that. This investigation by special counsel Jack Smith is very, very aggressive, uh, and the Justice Department is trying to do a lot here. Yeah, it seemed like a, a rare good day for Trump's legal team. Caitlin Polance, thank you for that update. I'm sure you guys are tired of hearing me talk about this what? story. You're tired of <laughs> watching me watch it the on niner, my phone. The 49ers? Oh my God, it, this, it's an amazing story out of the sports world. I, if you did not see it, it was fantastic. John Berman's probably tired of you talking about it. <laughs> he this, loves Tom Brady. This yeah, well, he's a Patriots guy. He's yeah. like. It was a problem for Brady. Lose. Oh, yeah. It was a problem, and it was in his hometown, his home team, and it was 
anyway, not, someone, someone texted me and said, he needs to say. I knew you were going to say that. I was like, don't say what you texted us. This is about Purdy, though. All right, so he was the very last pick in the 2022 NFL draft, getting the nickname Mr. Irrelevant. But with the 49ers starting quarterback out with an injury, Brock Purdy got his first NFL start on Sunday. It was extraordinary. He torched Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers, running for one touchdown, throwing for two more, blowing out the Bucs 35-7, spoiling Brady's homecoming. He is from the area, requested 100 tickets for his friends and family. You think Josh Purdy's dad was proud? As Caitlin said, anybody's parent would be crying. I mean, look at this guy. Of course he was. Looks like he's wiping away a tear, getting pretty emotional after his son's first touchdown pass. Here's what Brock Purdy said about that moment. The emotions on their face and um, just the way they looked down at me from up on the railing. Um, Man, it just means a lot. They believed in me, even though I was the last draft pick and all that kind of stuff. Like they were, they've always been telling me, like you're good enough, and, and we know that you can do it. And so to see them after that performance uh, meant a lot to me. And so very blessed to have them as my family. He played really well. You know, he threw a lot of good balls, hung in there in the blitz, and uh, they did a good job. They did a really good job. Yeah. Well, kudos and a handshake from the goat right there, Tom Brady. I don't think anybody can call Brock Purdy irrelevant anymore. No more. <laughs> I just, if you're watching this and you're not someone who watches football closely, it, it's absurd that he played that well. It's yeah, crazy. It it's a, it's amazing. It's so impressive, but it's just not something you typically see. Like, it's really out of the... There's a reason his dad was so yeah. emotional watching his son succeed like that. No, look, I'm not I'm not a fan of any... Look, I'm the New Orleans Saints guy because mm. I'm from Louisiana. But then just sitting, I was just watching the game, getting dressed to go to Heroes last night. And I'm like, oh, my... I cannot believe this is happening. Like, one touchdown after another, after another, after another. And I kept waiting for, like... I'm like, well, when is Brady going to score? He almost got shut out. I mean, it was... Why did, they, why did they call him Mr. Irrelevant? Because he was the last pick of the draft. Right, but this always happens. It's like someone who do, doesn't do well, and then they always come back, and it's like the best comeback stories ever. I don't know. I, get, I love short stories like that. Yeah. Let's hope it's the repeatable. Underdog. Yeah. Okay, I Mom. Think it is. <laughs> Mom's like, everybody doesn't kid. get a trophy. <laughs> Thanks, Poppy. Okay, so up next, new details this morning about Brittany Griner and what she is doing days after she was freed from a Russian prison. Also this morning, CNN is hearing from migrant workers in Qatar. They are revealing the mistreatment and abuse all in the shadows of the World Cup. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, welcome back to CNN This Morning and new this morning back on the court. That is Brittany Griner's agent telling ESPN that the WNBA All-Star had a light basketball workout in Texas yesterday. The workout happened just two days after Griner returned to American soil after nearly 10 months of imprisonment in Russia. Griner's first move, appropriately, a dunk. All right, so big picture here. The WNBA fought for Griner's release from Russian detention since last winter. And this is just the latest effort from the league. In recent years, WNBA members have helped flip a Senate seat in Georgia, 
by supporting Reverend Raphael Warnock, a Democrat, when Republican Senator Kelly Leffler, who owned the Atlanta Dream, spoke out against the Black Lives Matter movement. In the summer of 2020, the WNBA dedicated their season, the whole season, to Breonna Taylor, the 26-year-old killed by police in that raid of her home. Players wore Breonna Taylor's name on their jerseys in an effort to raise awareness for black female victims of police violence. And then you'll remember this one month later when Jacob Blake, an unarmed black man in Wisconsin, was shot seven times in the back by a white police officer and partly paralyzed. Well, the players once again stood up, postponed several of their games. Some wore shirts that spelled out Blake's name, each with seven bullet holes represented. WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert, who you heard from on the show Friday, told me about a year ago when we sat down why these players consistently speak up and stand up. What became very clear is that these players, it was bigger than basketball for them. Yeah. And unless you walk in their shoes, you don't know the heavy burden they took on. So let's talk to two stars of the WNBA players who know Brittany Griner and have been rallying to get her home since day one. Elizabeth Williams of the Washington Mystics, who has played against Griner since 2015, and Afisa Collier of the Minnesota Lynx, an Olympic gold medalist who played on the 2020 women's Olympic basketball team alongside Griner. Th- thank you both so much for being here and, and good morning to you. Um, Elizabeth, I want to begin with you because we all see what you do on the court and how you stand up and are so impressed by the consistency with which you guys use your voices for these causes. You have said, don't wait. If we wait, we don't make change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> any opportunity for us to speak up and speak out about social injustice is important. I think as female athletes, we're kind of inherently political and constantly you know, fighting, whether it's for pay equity, um, we're just opportunities for women. So I think, you know, we're going to continue to speak out. And obviously, BG's situation was very unique and unfortunate and uh, an even bigger reason to speak out. Well, and Nafisa, I mean, like this all ties to, to Brittany Griner because the reason she went to play in Russia was to supplement her income, as so many of your fellow players have to do because of the huge pay disparity for the WNBA players versus NBA. Yes, and that's something that we've been um, working for and fighting against for a long time. You know, we are getting better. We have a new CBA that was implemented three years ago. And so it is getting better, but it's not where we want it to be. And so players are still going overseas. Um, We're looking for ways to keep players here, but um, there are still ones that go overseas. And obviously, like Elizabeth said, it was such a unique and unfortunate situation with what happened with Brittany. Well, Nafisa, what was interesting about this predicament, though, is that it, it, you said it's deterred you from playing overseas mm-hmm. again. You said you've changed your mind. Even though it costs you money, it costs you playing time, you are now of this mindset, you've said, that it, it's just not worth it, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's really scary. And um, you really have to evaluate anyone who wants to go overseas, uh, what it's going to look like. And, you know, Russia was a big um, market also. Like, there's a lot of money to be held to be had there but you have to look at their rules are a lot different than ours their laws and um for me it's just not worth it uh for it's not the same for every player but i had to look at i have a family now um being at home is just a better option for me can i add the, uh I, this is going to sound like a weird question to either uh, nafisa or elizabeth did you guys see um trevor noah's goodbye on oh. the daily show with his tribute to black women i don't know if you saw that 
I didn't see that. Didn't see yeah, that. I saw a couple, a couple minutes of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, the, there's a method to my madness here. The reason I'm asking is because I, when mm-hmm. during George Floyd, I had this, um, I did this podcast called Silence is, is mm-hmm. Not an Option. And I highlighted the NBA and how you guys were leading on social issues during George Floyd, what you did with the jerseys and, and so on, even ahead, even before the NBA, before the guys did it. And I'm just wondering how, how that ties into I think it, it is. I think there is a tie between what Trevor Noah said about black women leading the way that they couldn't, you know what, and find out. And so if you and how much he had learned from black women in his life and what gives you the courage to lead on these issues and put your careers on the line for standing up for what you believe is right. Honestly, I think we're always operating with a sense of urgency um, and, you know, understanding that all of these issues, if something doesn't directly impact impact us now, it might in the future. Uh, And I think we've kind of seen an indication of that in BG's situation. You know, we've been talking about the pay disparity for a long time and players have been going overseas for a long time. And I think this is when people are realizing kind of the dangers and perils of people going overseas and the impact of what those pay equity issues are, right? So we we want to start the conversations early so that we don't get to this point. And I think there's just this kind of inherent understanding of Black women who want to take care of others and, and seeing how impactful that is. Mm-hmm. You really... And look what, what, look what BG might do for people who are wrongfully held overseas. I mean, that is, that is a huge international... That has geopolitical... Impact implications there. Nafisa, quickly before we go, I want to get your voice in here. Final thought. I was just going to add on to what Elizabeth said. Also, I think that us as WNBA players are in a unique situation because we are a double minority, a lot of us black women. Mm. Um, But we have this platform where we can speak out against the injustices and um, we can use our voice for change. And so I think that is it also a reason why the WNBA is so involved in this because we recognize that we do have power in our league. Yeah. Thank you both. I'm going to come watch you in Minnesota, you know, when I'm home. Yes, please do. Thank you both, Elizabeth and Nafisa. Thank you. And thank you for what you do. Thank you for bringing light to social issues. And thank you for even especially going there many times before the guys do. And, um, you know, as the son of a black woman, hey, more power to you. Nothing but love. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You know what? Did you see Roger Carstens, the hostage? Oh, it was amazing. He was on with Dana yesterday and he, he talked about... When he got on the plane with Brittany Griner, you know, it's his 12-hour flight back. And he kind of was like, you can have your space. You know, I know you've been through a lot. You know, let us know what you need. And she was like, no, no, I want to talk. And he said she talked most of the flight home because she said she'd been around Russian for so long. She wanted to talk and converse. And he said she was so gracious. She thanked the whole crew, introduced herself, got their names. And it was like a really lovely moment to hear, you know, what someone was like after being through 10 months in a Russian penal colony and detainment. I can't wait to see what she does now, but I also can't wait to see what she does for women's sports. And perhaps for the WNBA, perhaps it'll be hopefully similar to something with Venus and Serena, what they did for women's tennis. But I mean, it's going to be, you know, as when, when we were sitting here in Van says, when she puts her hand on a basketball and whatever, and, yeah. which we saw the, the practice there, but for an official game, 
It's gonna, I think it's going to be huge. Yeah. It's going to be huge. All right. I'm so glad we had them on. Thanks to our great team for booking them. Seriously. Um, Okay. Remembering Grant Wall, we are our friend. Looking back at the life of the sports journalist who died while covering the World Cup in Qatar. His former colleague at Sports Illustrated, Chris Stone, wrote this beautiful piece remembering him, and he'll be with us next. Also this morning, the environmental and financial concerns after the Keystone Pipeline spills thousands of barrels of oil. We'll give you the latest. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up on the program, why shipping containers, actual shipping containers, are now lining the U.S.-Mexico border. This is a move that one federal agency calls illegal. Also, a New York college student who is currently studying abroad in France is now being reported missing. We'll tell you about that. And a winter storm pummeling the West Coast, how the South will be impacted ahead. But first this morning, we are remembering a pioneer of soccer journalism here in the United States and around the world, and also a friend of this show, Grant Wall, who passed away at the World Cup in Qatar on Friday. He had just turned 49 years old. He covered eight men's World Cups as a reporter, and he reported from Qatar for CNN this morning. You remember he talked to us in recent weeks after he was detained by officials there on the ground when he was trying to enter the stadium for wearing a rainbow shirt. I I was thinking the entire time, like if I'm being treated this way during the World Cup when the attention of the world is on Qatar and I'm an American uh, who has a pretty prominent media following, imagine how gay people in Qatar outside of World Cups must feel or what they must endure. And I've got family members who are gay. I've got friends who are gay. I've got journalist friends who are gay who are here in Qatar. Um, But you don't need that to to be supportive, to to be an ally. Joining us now is Chris Stone, the former editor-in-chief of Sports Illustrated, where he worked with Grant for 23 years. He's now the deputy managing editor and vice president of LA Times Studios. Chris, I know this is hard, so thank you for joining, joining us this morning because you do know Grant so well, and you worked with him for over two decades. And you, ever since news of his death broke, Everyone has been talking about the impact he had, what kind of reporter he was. Everyone remembers the LeBron James story that he had. But what I was struck by that you wrote was less about how he was as a reporter and more how he was as a colleague. You said from the late spring day in 1996 that he walked into the Sports Illustrated headquarters, he relentlessly championed inclusion and his colleagues, especially younger ones and those further removed from the levers of corporate governance. Yeah, I mean, Grant and his wife, Dr. Celine Gunder, used to throw these dinner parties for Sports Illustrated you know, uh, once a month. And the idea behind these dinners was to bring people together who normally wouldn't come together, who probably didn't know each other, even as much time as they might have spent in the workplace. And he was really all about connection. And I think that's how he viewed soccer in a big way. People have used the word um, He lifted soccer, he popularized it, he pioneered its coverage. But I think above everything, what Grant did, both in his coverage of soccer and in the way he relayed to colleagues, is he believed in sharing. He shared soccer, much in the same way that Anthony Bourdain shared food and used it as a vehicle to bring people together. That's what Grant saw, among other things, as being the purpose of soccer, 
I thought it was, um, you know, when we had him on the show and we talked to him about the moment when he had an issue getting into the game because he was wearing uh, that shirt, he didn't actually think it was a big deal. Like, it was just sort of second nature to him to stand up for people, marginalize people, really to, for everyone. Um, and that was just who he was. It wasn't, it wasn't like he was trying. That was just Grant being Grant. Yeah, I heard um, him in that earlier clip say that he was an ally, and that's what he really was. He was an ally, especially to his friends, to strangers, you know, and he had this big platform that he really created from from scratch. And, you know, from the day he launched this soccer standalone vertical at Sports Illustrated right through this World Cup in Qatar, he recognized the power of that platform. But by nature, he was a person who was an ally, the friends, the colleagues, getting back to Caitlin's earlier question. I mean, that's who Grant was. I'm so sorry. Um, reading your piece just t- tugged at sort of every single heartstring because you clearly loved him and admired him so much. And you wrote, you talked about Bourdain earlier, our former colleague, Anthony Bourdain, and, 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 and you write, um, like Bourdain, he had the gift of converting the incurious or at least getting them to sit up and take, take respectful notice. He helped us see things that we were missing. Yeah, I think he viewed it as kind of his obligation, almost as a sort of benign penance for this great adventurous life he had. How could he not share it? Everybody wanted, you know, he would come back from these trips, you know, across the ocean in different hemispheres in the farthest, most remote corners of the world. And we wanted to hear about the experiences. And he was all too eager to share that not only with us, but with his readers. I think it was really important to him to acknowledge, I have this big, wonderful life, but I want to share this big, wonderful life with you. It's gonna be so missed. Chris, I know this is difficult, but thank you for joining us to talk about him because it's important to talk about him. Chris, thank you. And I think it's a little detail that's important before we go here. Flowers are left at the desk that would have been Grant's as the England uh, and France game was played on Saturday. So thank you. Uh, We appreciate you joining us uh, for that this morning. It's Chris. It's amazing. Uh, Listen, just there there are those flowers. We just have to be transparent because we just had Grant on. Um, We love Chris and that he's sharing about his friend. We also, we know Celine. She's a member of our family. She helped us get through COVID. Dr. Mm -hmm. Celine Gounder. His wife. uh, His wife. And um, I've been texting with her. Um, His body's coming home soon. She's got to deal with that. Eventually she'll come out and speak. Mm -hmm. And I would love for her to come and speak on this show just to honor her husband. And um, because he was an extraordinary man as she is an extraordinary woman. And we are all thinking about you, Dr. Gounder. We are. We're with you and we love you. Okay, so um, as this morning, migrant workers who built the stadiums that we were just talking about, right, in Qatar, leading up to the World Cup, they are sharing their stories of abuse and mistreatment now. So CNN's Larry Madoa is hearing some of these first-person accounts, and he joins us now live from Nairobi, Kenya. Um, Hello to you. Good morning or good afternoon to you there. Larry, what have you been learning about this? Don, we've heard harrowing stories so painful that several migrant workers have told us 
It was similar to modern-day slavery. Let me just walk you through some of these accusations. They spent years building the World Cups that the world has now seen during the FIFA World Cup. And they said they worked long hours, sometimes 14, 16-hour days with very few breaks. They were not paid overtime. And whenever FIFA inspectors came to look around, they were told to behave, to say they were being treated well. They endured verbal and physical abuse. They endured long hours. They were not paid. It's just a litany of accusations. And I want you to listen to this one worker who's just returned to Kenya after three years in Qatar. I saw the supervisor call another Kenyan less black monkey. Then when the, the Kenyan counted back, he asked him, why are you calling me black monkey? Then he slapped, the supervisor slapped the Kenyan. Another one died on that new harsh weather condition. One, my colleague died, another one was beaten and was and he went missing. You saw somebody die in front of you? Yeah, somebody collapsed and died. And I think that was the, because of the harsh weather condition. Because of the heat? Because of the heat, the limited drinking water breaks. That man is a football fan, as you can see, but he says he's too traumatized to watch the World Cup. He doesn't even want to watch Qatar on television. And there are stories all around Africa and South Asia, the bulk of whom formed the migrant workers that bailed this World Cup. And Larry, what I was struck by was how the World Cup officials were responding, one saying that death is a natural part of life. You know, there are going to be questions about accountability and what people want to see here. Yeah. Absolutely, because until very recently, organizers insisted that only three people died during the building of the entire World Cup. And it's only until a few weeks ago that the World Cup chief for Qatar admitted that the, between 400 to 500 migrants could have died on projects connected to the World Cup. But that sort of flippant attitude has been criticized for saying death is a natural part of life because these, any, any one death is an outrage, but so many and so many who are uncounted is truly an outrage for many people. And the, the organizers and FIFA are sort of in lockstep here, and they say the media has focused too much on negativity and false stories about migrant workers instead of just focusing on the soccer. Larry, thank you. We appreciate it. Larry, live from Nairobi this morning. And we have new images of shipping containers uh, filling in the gaps at the U.S.-Mexico border wall. Look at this. It's up on your screen. Mm. We're going to get a reaction from how officials are preparing for a surge in migrants. That's next. And a Los Angeles City Council member who was already embroiled in controversy was caught on camera fighting an activist. We have details for you on what you were seeing here. That's next. That is a bad look. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So right now, Arizona's outgoing Republican governor, Doug Ducey, is pushing ahead with his efforts to do what he thinks will secure the southern border. He's stacking shipping containers topped with razor wire to fill gaps in border fencing built under the Trump administration. Now, this comes as officials brace for an influx of migrants when the hold on the ruling strike down uh, Title 42 lifts just days before Christmas. So the pandemic border um, restriction has been used nearly 2.5 million times to expel migrants without allowing them to apply for asylum while in the U.S. Arizona's newly independent Senator Kirsten Sinema wants the policy extended. She addressed the southern border crisis in an interview with our Jake Tapper. Watch this. Well, as a native Arizonan who was born and raised near the southern border, I can tell you unequivocally 
that the federal government has failed its duty in the last 40 years. Not just Democrats. Not, it's just everyone. The federal government has failed here. And places like Arizona, front lines of this crisis, have been paying the price every single day since then. So for us, this isn't just a talking point of Team A versus Team B. This is our life every day. So listen, there's the very detailed story. So we want to bring in now Maria Santana. She's an anchor and a correspondent for CNN and Espanol. And Raul Reyes is an attorney and a CNN opinion columnist. We're so glad to have both of you on. Good morning. Welcome Good morning. to the program. Thank it's good you. to see you this early in the morning. Maria, can you please break down this border situation? Because it's complicated. People at home may not know all the nuance and all the details and the, the politics particularly surrounding this. Yeah, so Title 42 is a Trump-era policy, which was enacted early on in the pandemic um, to send migrants uh, crossing the southern border back uh, either to Mexico or to them, their home countries without allowing them to uh, apply for asylum, as our laws indicate. And part of the reasoning behind that, the Trump administration said, was to stop the spread of COVID-19 in the detention centers and immigration detention centers, even though the CDC had said at the time that uh, migrants weren't a huge cause of uh, spread of COVID-19. So it was seen as a political move by critics um, just to use immigration again as this uh, divisive issue and expeditiously ex expel immigrants from, from the country. Now, when Biden came in, he said that he was gonna end the policy right away. And what we have seen is that the Biden administration has sent mixed messages about it. Um, they've come to rely on it more and more, especially as we got closer to the midterm elections, when immigration became, again, a very polarizing hot topic, and they wanted to change the conversation because um, what DHS officials are projecting is that once Title 42 is lifted, anywhere between 9,000 and 14,000 migrants would try to cross the border um, with a worst case scenario of about 18,000 a day. And that's more than double. And that's the rub there. right now. That's yes. where we are. Yeah. Yes, and the, you know, the, one of the major problems with this idea of stacking these containers is that the governor is doing it on what is federal land and tribal uh, Native American land. So he really does not have, number one, legal authority to just erect these con containers there. And he admits that because he filed a lawsuit with the government to say that he recognizes that, but he feels that he has to take the situation into his own hands. So so that's a problem. And Just to clarify, yeah. they're putting these shipping containers yeah. and they're putting barbed wire to... to Right. To right. They're just kind of the Sorry, lining them on. up along, a, a, I think it's about a 10 mile uh, stretch. The other thing is that even looking at the pictures, they are wildly ineffective because people can climb up on them. If people want to climb up on them and go over them, it's very easily done. It's a dangerous uh, construction effort because in August, Univision reported that two of them toppled over. Mm. And so it, can, it holds the potential to harm Border Patrol agents and, and firefighters there. It's, it's completely ineffective. And then the, 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 to me, what is in a sense a conservative argument against these containers, the state of Arizona, the taxpayers are paying up to $95 million for this. And that's the governor's estimate. And in about three weeks, when there's a new governor, the taxpayers of Arizona are going to be paying millions more just to undo all these containers and get rid of them with the new governor. So it, hasn't, it doesn't solve anything. It doesn't reform our immigration system or increase the effectiveness of our asylum system. It is just sort of a, a, a stunt, like a, a border publicity type of effort. 
But the thing, and maybe it's not the solution. And, you know, there obviously is debate over whether or not it's legal, the environmental issues as well. Right. right but right. it is talking about a real issue, which is the border. And that is something that Republicans and Democrats alike in Arizona agree on. You heard Senator Sinema mm-hmm. there. Katie Hobbs told us that she thinks that the federal government, including Democrats, mm-hmm. ha- have not addressed it in, in a real way. Mm-hmm. They are now bracing if Title 42 does end as it's scheduled, I believe, December 21st, there is going to be an influx of apprehensions at the border. We've already for seen sure, record For numbers. sure, yeah. Well, the, what, what will happen with, you know, when Title 42 ends? I mean, no one disputes, as you mentioned, that we're going to see a very high influx of migrants at the border. I think what gets lost in this picture is that ending Title 42 will basically amount to a restoration of law. That's U.S. law, that migrants have the right to apply for asylum um, it's pursuant to U.S. law and also our international treaties. Whether or not there's more than we can handle, that's the responsibility of the U.S. government, which has never set limits on asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. For example, legal immigration, there are caps and limits for each country. The diversity visa, refugees, Congress has set limits. With asylum seekers, our country, Congress, has not. So where there's really no... Uh, productive way to say X number of thousand or this number of asylum seekers is too many. Well, it's it's on the government to make an effective and humane asylum and let's, system. Let's see if this sort of framework that's being worked on by uh, Kirsten Sinema now an independent and Tom mm-hmm. Tillis, a Republican, yeah, can, can, in, can come yeah, to... Democrats in swing states, moderate Democrats who are more in danger uh, politically, they tend to side a little more with the Republican side, which is why you see Arizona and New Hampshire and, and Montana. Good to uh, see people from different parties coming together. Right. Can they actually do it this time? How many times have they tried and failed? Let's hope so. Thank <laughs> you. That's created a humanitarian crisis as well, Title 42, with kids, families in Mexico, maybe persecuted in dangerous conditions, living in tents for like two years, um, when our laws specifically say that they can come in and, and ask for it. So Yeah, I'm glad you guys pointed to it would be a reversion back to the law, right. which is you can right, go absolutely. before a judge... And seek asylum. Thank you both. Come back early and often. We love having you guys here. (laughs) Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you, Raul. Uh, New this morning, scientists are set to announce a major breakthrough in the so-called holy grail of clean energy. What is that? Monday. It's Monday morning. Good morning, everyone. Did you have a good morning. weekend? I had a great weekend. Or as a we late say. Sunday at Heroes, which you'll see more of later. <laughs> yep. As I say, yes. We're gonna get, I can't wait to. The hero's going to be here. The hero is going to be She's here. She's amazing. She is amazing. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. It is December 12th. We're going to catch you up on the five big stories on CNN this morning. More than 15 million people in 14 states are under winter weather alerts this morning as a storm system that dumped feet of snow in Northern California. It heads east. The central part of the U.S. and the south are facing a multi-day severe storm threat. Also this morning, Congress is facing a looming government shutdown deadline as lawmakers are racing to try to seal a deal on a full year spending plan by Friday. Republicans and Democrats are still clashing, though, over the spending priorities and what those numbers are going to look like, including on social programs and the need to raise the government's borrowing limit next year. Plus, President Biden and President Zelensky spoke yesterday on the phone. That conversation coming as Biden, the other G7 leaders, and Zelensky are going to have a virtual meeting this morning as the latest round of Russian airstrikes have targeted and damaged critical infrastructure in Ukraine, leaving many without power and heat as winter is setting in. 
Well, this morning, Brittany Griner is at a military facility in Texas after 10 months of Russian imprisonment. But we have learned the basketball star will spend some time there before she returns home. Her agent told ESPN that she had a light basketball workout in Texas on Sunday. No word yet on when she will officially, though, go home. And a college student who is currently studying abroad in France is now being reported missing. The family of Kenny DeLand Jr. says they have not heard from him in more than two weeks. He is a senior at St. John Fisher University in Rochester, New York. Bank records show he last made a purchase at a store on December 3rd, but no one has seen him since. But first this morning, we start with a clock ticking in Washington. As this seems to happen almost every year, Congress finding itself with just five days left to keep the government funded and avoid the latest Republican threat to shut down the government, potentially once they take over the House next year. Democrats are looking to seal the deal on a full-year spending plan, but some Republicans maybe trying to buy time until January. CNN's MJ Leave is live at the White House this morning. MJ, what is the White House's sense of where these talks stand and if any progress is being made? Well, Caitlin, we know that everyone involved in the negotiations had a very busy weekend. You know, one official I was talking to yesterday who has been involved in these talks said this time of year is the time of year when there is no weekend for people who work on these appropriations matters. The two sides are basically slogging through it right now. Uh, At this stage, I am told the two sides are presenting to each other their various bottom lines. But by the end of the weekend, they were still billions of dollars apart. And even though we sense that there was some progress made over the weekend, uh, we know that there are still serious disagreements, particularly on spending on some of these uh, priority domestic items. You know, Republicans have basically been saying to Democrats, you guys have spent so much money already this year on things like COVID, uh, climate change and health care, so you shouldn't get as much next year. And Democrats have responded in kind. Uh, This was money that was absolutely crucial and necessary, and that shouldn't affect how much we get to spend next year. Yeah, and there's not going to be a government shutdown, but it seems also really unlikely they're going to have an agreement on this hammered out by Friday. So what is the next step here that Congress is likely to take? Yeah, you're absolutely right that there is agreement right now that come Friday at midnight, which is when the funding runs out, there is not going to be a government shutdown. Uh, There is agreement right now on both sides, essentially, that there will need to be some kind of short-term measure that gets passed to buy everyone, essentially, a few days of more time. So that's what people are talking about whenever you hear the term uh, short-term CR or continuing resolution. And at least for the White House's part, they are still publicly saying, yes, something will get done on government spending, the government will be funded. There is a path. Uh, There is time. But right now, the big question is, when exactly is that going to get done? And of course, how? We'll be waiting to find out. MJ Lee, we know you'll be there on the White House lawn. Thank you. Well, this morning, use of the Keystone pipeline has been paused after a huge leak. An estimated 14,000 barrels of crude oil spilled into a creek in northeastern Kansas. This happened last week. Homeowners along that creek are obviously devastated. Huge environmental concerns. And this woman who says the oil has spilled onto her longtime family farm. We know we have pasture grass that's black that probably will have to be removed. Things happen, and we just have to repair it and, and, uh, and move forward. So crews have been dispatched to work on the repairs and the cleanup. It is not clear when, though, the pipeline will be back up and running, and that means 
The 600,000 barrels of oil that flow through it every day are now also on hold. So we want to get now to a possible milestone in the pursuit of clean energy. Here's what The Washington Post is reporting and Financial Times as well. That scientists have made a major breakthrough using nuclear fusion with the energy department set to make a big announcement tomorrow. And for that, CNN's chief climate correspondent, Mr. Bill, he's doing his own. Hi, Don. Sound effects here. Hey, he's Tomos. here with us. So you deserve it. Good morning to you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Well, Faye, let's see how he gets through this, this next story. Yeah. But this, I mean, it's fascinating. Look, this, this fusion thing that people have been, it's been so hard to achieve and how it could change the game for the climate crisis. Yes. This is the holy grail of energy. Imagine uh, a glass of water fueling your house for hundreds of years with no waste, cheaply, renewably. Uh, this is what they've said is just a decade away and always will be is the joke about oh. nuclear fusion. Fission uh, that we are familiar with splits atoms and creates all the nuclear waste that we know about. Fusion jams them together by basically creating a star in a box. You're creating the power of the sun uh, and you're using uh, hydrogen atoms, water, H2O, right? And smash them together. And up until now, the, the conventional way to do this was to use these massive magnets, magnets that are big enough literally to lift an aircraft carrier. Wow. But the Lawrence Livermore uh, Laboratory, they decided to use lasers. And so they're heating up this, this hydrogen plasma, making it so hot that the reaction creates more energy than you put in. And so this could be a major breakthrough, Secretary Granholm expected to uh, announce tomorrow. The question is commercial use, though, right? Yeah. When, is, when is it going to be something that's... It could be decades you can actually see it life. away. It could be decades away. But... You know, it's one of those things where you think nothing's going to happen and then something happens yeah. and then it's all at once. Right. And you're going past. Decades what we, isn't that long. It's not that long. And we're on the cusp <laughs> For of this. And there's other pathways to this that could have even bigger breakthroughs. But I think the bigger sense is the lead into this story was another pipeline. That's lead, just what I was thinking. Right. Like this doesn't have spills like that. Right, exactly. But and there the are implications, is, too. The oh, of course. There's, there's trade-offs for everything, right. for wind and solar and all of those, but you're looking for the less horrible, least horrible options. And it's obvious that depending on the fuels that leak and burn is what got us into this climate crisis. And the closer we can get this to a better future, the, the faster, the better. You were saying that you were looking at water powering your your home and... What it's, it's, the, it's the hydrogen atoms that's in a glass of water is the fuel source for this. I kept thinking from a family who grew up with two parents who worked for Exxon, for yeah. oil and chemical plants. They must be saying, wait, what the heck is this all about? They're, are they happy about it? They're not. Well, I mean, it, anything that challenges the status quo business models, that's, that's the most profitable industry ever. Um, but the smart ones will probably get behind these new transitions, right? And this is just one factor of a whole new, I'm working on a special on this now, mm. these ideas of, of things that are, everything you can see in your physical world will have to be reinvented in some way or another. Wow. Uh, energy sources, uh, how you clothe and feed and shelter your children, everything is changing in the most dramatic ways coming forward. This could be major. This could be like a, a Wright Brothers moment for energy tomorrow if, if they confirm this happened. Yeah, we'll see what Secretary Granholm says in her announcement. Bill Weir, thank you, as thank always. You, the future is now. Look, we looked at all those movies from, the, like, in the future, right, when we were kids, and now we're living in that. Is it here? Yeah. Good to see you. Thanks, Good Bill. All right, Orange County, California, once a solid Republican stronghold, has now officially declared racism a public health crisis. 
The resolution was unanimously adopted by the board. It's more than symbolic, though, because it calls for a review of county government policies and operations by an ad hoc committee tasked with identifying potential practices of concern. Areas of review will be county social services facilities, homeless shelters, hospitals, to ensure that underrepresented communities are not being inadvertently denied access. The resolution was sponsored by the Republican member of the Orange County California Board of Supervisors, Andrew Joe, and was met with some contempt by some in the audience. One heard yelling an ethnic slur. Thank you for passing this resolution. Uh, can I please speak? Can I speak? speak? We need to have this resolution in this county. So with that, I thank you for your work. Thank you. Really? Go back to China and, and you think racism is dead? Really? Okay. All right. So irony is a concept that's foreign to some of us. For those of you who care enough to follow, I am far from the left. Okay. I've been attacked more for being for, of my party affiliation than anybody on this board for the last eight years. So don't, don't get on your soapbox and preach to me. I don't, really, I don't know what to say. What did you say? I said he's really he pushed back against as they were talking about, you know, what this is actually going to look like when it comes to these reviews of the systems. And obviously that was a moment there. I mean, and it, but it gets us directly into what we're going to talk about now, and we can react to that one as well, because this one is out of Los Angeles as a city council in the throes of more controversy with council member Kevin DeLeon facing fresh scrutiny after dramatic video showing him in a physical fight with a community activist. Uh. That is not a good look, right? Earlier this year, he faced calls to resign following leaked audio of a council meeting revealing that DeLeon and other members that they were making racist comments. CNN's Nick Watt in Los Angeles for us. Good morning to you, Nick. The new video is stunning, but this is just another chapter in what has become a saga for the Los Angeles Council. That's right, Don. Listen, that audio leaked a couple of months ago. It was secretly recorded during a meeting on redistricting. A lot of very unpleasant things were said. Now, Kevin DeLeon, the Democratic City Council member, clearly hoped that that had all blown over by now. He was just trying to dip his toes back in public waters, and it really didn't go well. Kevin DeLeon is wearing the Santa hat, a wounded lion of L.A. politics. Green jacket, that's Jason Reedy, community activist. You're racist. No, you're then a quick descent into foul-mouthed face-off. The Santa hat falls. This was a holiday party. Okay. There is backstory here. In October, some year-old audio leaked. City Council President Nuri Martinez talking about a fellow council member and his kid. There's nothing you can do to control him. Why is it Changito? Translation, little monkey. This kid is a beatdown. Bye, bye, she apologized and later resigned. On that tape, she also said Councilman Mike Bonin uses his son like an accessory. De Leon appeared to agree, made a joke. Because I went away. They used to have those statues in the plantations. Yeah, and then when Nori brings the 
yard bag or the, the, the Louis Vuitton bag. <laughs> Officially censored, De Leon's been laying very low, clinging hard to power, expressing regrets but refusing to resign. De Leon is high profile, took a tilt at the L.A. mayor's job this year, served as president pro tempore of the state Senate, ran in a primary for a U.S. Senate seat, well known enough to go by an acronym, KDL. He claims Jason Reedy was the aggressor. Reedy launched a pelvic thrust followed by a headbutt to my forehead, De Leon said in a statement Saturday. My response in defense of myself was to push him off me. Reedy gave this video to the LAPD. We're waiting on comment from police. Reedy did not initiate physical contact with anyone, his lawyer told CNN. Not only has Kevin DeLeon lost all political legitimacy, his claims he was the one attacked here simply underscores how he's lost touch with reality while appearing to grab hold of a constituent. Now, all this comes at a moment of history for Los Angeles. Yesterday, Karen Bass was uh, sworn in as the first female mayor of the city, the first female of color as to serve as mayor of the city. And she has serious things to deal with. She's going to declare a state of emergency on homelessness. More than 40,000 people are homeless in this city right now. So with all that as the backdrop, Don, as you say, wrestling like this really is not a good look. No, not a good look, especially from uh, our leaders or from anyone, really. Nick Watt, thank you very much. Well, if you ride the subway in New York City, like we do daily, well, it's going to cost you more. The city's public transportation uh, is going to be three bucks. We'll talk about that. What is driving the possible price hike? And reaction across Washington and the nation after Senator Kirsten Sinema announced that she was leaving the Democratic Party. Independent Senator Angus King, who made the same move in 1993, who is also an independent, is going to join us to discuss. There he is. He's over the phone. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, a lot of reaction pouring in after Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema announced she's leaving the Democratic Party and now becoming an independent. Senator Bernie Sanders says that Sinema's decision is likely due to politics he believes in her home state, not in Washington. I think uh, the Democrats there are not all that enthusiastic about somebody who helps sabotage some of the most important legislation that protects the interests uh, of working families and voting rights and, and so forth. Joining us now is independent Senator Angus King from Maine, who first ran as an independent as the governor of Maine back in 1994. You've got another independent. What's your reaction? My caucus just increased by a third. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know who's going to be chair. I mean, but you, when you have Cinema King and Bernie, that's a pretty broad section. But it actually says something because, uh, I, you know, there's a lot of speculation. Is she trying to avoid a Democratic primary? One of the problems with primaries today is that they tend to favor the activists on either side, mm -hmm. Republican or Democrat. And so somebody who does reach across the aisle has trouble. You, you can lose your seat in a primary, not because of your position on immigration or any of those kinds of things. You can lose your seat because you're viewed as someone who talks to the other side. 
I have a Republican friend. He was facing a primary in the Senate. I said, what are they going to charge you with? You're conservative as hell. He said, they're going to charge me with being reasonable. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a minute. And a question of Arizona, though, we talked about the makeup of the Senate, the structure, but in Arizona, if she does run for re-election, which she hasn't said she'll do yet, but if there is a three-way race between a Republican, a strong Democratic candidate, and Senator Sinema, does that complicate things for Democrats come 2024? Of course it does. It, it, well, it'll, it'll be a complicated race, because if you run as an independent, you either have to win or you're a spoiler. Get handed to Republicans, and, and that's that's the uh, uh, that that's the danger. That's the situation. But uh, you know, go back. Lisa Murkowski would not be reelected to the Senate. She's one of the best senators, in my view. But it was ranked choice voting and this kind of jungle primary idea where everybody can run. It doesn't matter about party, uh, because the, the there used to be something like a hundred balanced uh, competitive House districts. Now they're like ten, mm-hmm. where it's all you know, Republican or all Democratic. And that's not good for the country. If people come to Washington afraid to talk about solving the problems, we'll never get there. Well, but can we, because you mentioned the whole spoiler thing, right? This, do we have somebody of Kristen Cinema actually talking about that, criticizing someone for doing the exact same thing, uh, Joe Lieberman, that she's mm-hmm. doing? Watch this. So what does that mean? Well, in the Senate... We no longer have 60 votes. Some would argue that we never had 60 because one of those was Joseph Lieberman. But that's whatever. Um, yeah, and Nelson, too, but really Lieberman. Um, so, so now there's, um, I think as the president so eloquently said on Wednesday, there's none of this pressure, this false pressure to get to 60. So what that means is that um, the Democrats um, can stop uh, kowtowing to Joe Lieberman and instead seek other avenues to move forward with health reform. And so it's likely that the Senate will move forward with a process called reconciliation, which takes only 51 votes. So that's the whole point of trying to having to appeal to, you know, your party rather than doing sort of what you think is right. Am well, I wrong about that? No, no, you're not wrong. But as, as I say, the, the issue is primaries, Don. About 20 to 25 percent of the members of a party vote in a primary. Who are, who are those 20 to 25 percent? They're the activists, the people that are in the Democratic side, more over toward the progressive, on the Republican side, more over toward MAGA and the conservative. So somebody who will listen and talk. Kirsten Sinema, you know, she, you watch, a, watch C-SPAN on a vote and you'll see all this milling around and she's around all over the hall. She's talking to Republicans, to John Thune and, and John Cornyn and Mitch and, and over the other side. And frankly, we need that kind of thing where we can reach some kind of organic group in the middle that can build out all of these major things that we've accomplished this year, the, the uh, infrastructure bill, uh, the, the PACT Act, the Veterans Bill, the, the, uh, the Chips and Science Act, all came from people getting together on both parties and building a consensus outward. And that's really, I think, the way it, it, it has to work. So I understand what, what she's doing and don't really criticize it. You can say, well, she's trying to avoid a primary. I think you have to look deeper than that and say, where are we with this primary system? If Lisa Murkowski had had to run in a Republican primary in Alaska, she'd be gone. And we would have lost one of our very best senators. I liked this moment. You were on 60 Minutes. I think it was last year. It's quick, but I want people to watch what you said about being an independent. Here you were. I have no 
automatic friends in the legislature, but I also don't have enemies. I have 186 skeptics. Yeah. I like that. That's, that's when I was governor, but I had to build every issue. I had to build my own coalition but every time. It goes to the question I had, which is, um, do you think many more of your colleagues should become independents? I think that's a lot of where the public is. The problem is the structure is such that the two-party system really dominates how, the, how our, our, everything is set up, how you get on the ballot. And the other part is, and, and I was fortunate running as an independent for governor of Maine, because we'd had an independent governor 20 years before. So it was thinkable. Mm. The hardest thing for an independent is to convince the voters that they're not wasting their vote, that it's not, you know, a, a, right. a flaky uh, side side Spoiler to, to Don's point that it's actually. Yeah, you've you got to convince them that, that you're for real. But I think, you know, in my view, when I ran for governor, my, my view was that there's a road down the middle. And, and we had just had a government shutdown there to, uh, you know, in Maine. The politics was very polarized. So mm -hmm. I came in at, at, at my timing was uh, very good. Can I, can, let's turn to some topics, if we could. Uh, yeah, government funding um, and what, what the heck's going to happen. Do you, would you agree that funding the government is one of the most important jobs yeah. of a sitting member of Congress? You think? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I, of course I mean, it it's is. like I kind of ask in jest, but not really, because no. you guys, I'm not pointing to you, but the it's, collective keep getting here. It, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, September 30th is the, is, was the deadline. Again, not to go back too much to when I was government, the, we, we had a trouble getting a budget one year and the part of the legislature came to me and said, let's do a continuing resolution like they do in Washington. I said, not no on way. your life. Right. Once you open that door, it's just too damn easy. So will we get it done? Yes. Will it happen probably, I predict, Christmas Eve? Ugh. A couple of days, you know, in, oh, in, that, in that area. Um, it should be, it, it should have been done a long time ago. They, they're trying to agree on what's called a top line. Once they agree on a top line for defense and non-defense, then you can, you can do the rest. What's happening, we, we passed a major veterans bill, and I think the negotiation is defense, non-defense, and veterans. In other words, put the veterans in a different category, and I, th I think that may be helping them to get to a deal. The last I talked to people on Friday was they were close, but I think you outlined it, your reporter outlined it very well, that, that the Republicans basically say, look, we've had enough domestic spending. You don't need, we don't need parity here. And that's where the argument Okay, is. but I'm gonna put you on the spot here because if there is no agreement, would you support a one-year continuing resolution? <sighs> well, I'd have to. I mean, uh, I, I, that would be, that's the, that's the second worst outcome. The worst outcome would be a shutdown. Right. right. Uh, and if that's the option, but a, a one-year continuing resolution would be terrible. We couldn't, we couldn't fund uh, Ukraine. We couldn't fund any of the new initiatives. We couldn't fund the, uh, you know, I mean, it would just, that, it, would be, uh, it would be terrible for defense. I'm on armed services. I can tell you it would be devastating for the military. Another big thing that we've talked about is the Electoral Count Reform Act, which mm. for people at home are like, what? It, it's basically what Congress has been trying to pass that would prevent what Trump did, which was trying to take advantage of that and, and say what that's, Pence's That's role my was. highest priority for the next two weeks. And But the question is, if it does not, if the Senate doesn't act on it by the end of the year, the process is going to start again. That means it goes back to the House. The House is going to be controlled by Republicans. Won't happen. They've already said, I don't think the Republicans have the least interest 
in, in, uh, in, in fixing the Electoral Count Act, although they ought to stop and think for a minute. I mean, one of the things we do in this reform is make it clear that the vice president doesn't have the power to throw out votes, which is what Donald Trump wanted Mike Pence to do. I don't think they've woken up to the fact that the vice president two years from now is going to be Kamala Harris. They ought to be on. We, this is a reform that ought to make sense to both parties. OK, so then why? 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 Why isn't it done? Why isn't it done and why, the, why well, the, the, the tribalism on something that seems to make sense? It's common sense. You're making too much sense. <laughs> uh, Line of the morning. But no, uh, well, the bill came out of this committee, uh, the Rules Committee, 14 to 1. Mitch supported it. Yeah. All the Republicans except one. Guess. Can you guess who the one was? Caitlin the, knows everything on the, oh, I don't know. Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. That's what I'm, didn't the midterms show us that the American people want things done in Washington rather than just... Of course. So then and I think we will get it done. I think we're going to get it done by the end of the year. You do? You do. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's, it'll either be part of the budget. I think they're going to find a way to do it. Mitch McConnell wants it done. Chuck Schumer wants it done. Uh, Nancy Pelosi wants it done. Uh, I, I think we're going to. I, I think we're going to get there. I, I've been working on it for a, over a year, and and this is uh, it's one of the highest priorities. This we're this is a, a time bomb underneath the democracy. This electoral count act is such a mess wow. and uh, so subject to abuse. Now that's a soundbite. A time bomb underneath the American democracy. Yeah. It is. We appreciate you. We know you got a train to Washington. <laughs> I do. Very much. We're going to get you out Thanks. the door. By the way, real quick, what? you didn't get the memo. What? Oh, the because tie? He's wearing a tie, but we, I'll let you pass because usually people don't wear a tie, but that is the Constitution. So It's, it's the Constitution, we the people, and uh, you can get one at the, uh, at the store of the Library of Congress. <laughs> Thank you so Senator much. Angus King. Thank you. Thank you really so much, Senator. Thank you. Safe travels back to D.C. All right. This morning's number is three. I'll tell you why Harry Enton is at the wall with how this affects your commute. And who didn't make it out of the White Lotus. I'm digging no spoilers for now, at least. Well, we're going to have Will Sharp, the actor who plays Ethan. He's going to join, join us live straight ahead here. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. We have a new clip. It's from the Harry and Meghan documentary, what we can expect from part two of their series release. Russian President Putin cancels his annual end-of-the-year news conference, why he is shying away from the public for the first time in a decade. And CNN's Hero of the Year has been named, and she is going to join us now live. And it is Poppy. Because we're going to talk about something I know well. <laughs> no, it's going to say you're the Hero of the Year. but If yeah. only. We're going to talk about the subway. Right. Hi, Harry. Okay, yeah. I'm reading this camera. Riding the subway in New York City could soon cost you even more, and it is thanks to, no surprise, your... COVID, CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton joins us with the morning this month with the number this morning because a bunch of people didn't ride the subway during COVID and the MTA is consistently like underfunded. How much is it going to cost? Yeah. So look, this is just one idea of how to close a potential three $3 billion budget gap oh come gosh. 2025. It could be up to 302. That's up from 275. Now that might not seem like a lot, but when you're taking the subway every day and you're not using a weekly or a monthly pass, this is the type of number that could add up. We could go over $3. Now, why, why is it that we could have this large gap, this large budget gap? Because take a look at the current New York City subway ridership level as a percentage of the pre-pandemic period. We're only at about 65 percent 
only at about 65%. And of course, we're already well past the time of which we've gotten these vaccines that we could get into our arms. And yet folks are not returning to the subway in New York City to the levels they were at yeah, least Yeah, because a bunch of people are working at home, not us. But Yeah, there, there are a lot of people. And this is something that we have seen throughout the country, right? This is not just a New York City thing, right? If it was New York City, it'd be fun because we could have the conversation. But most of the folks in the audience would be like, why are we talking about this? Right. But take a look here at the current rapid transit ridership level as a percentage of the pre-pandemic period. In San Francisco, it's only at about 40%. In Washington, D.C., it's only about 45%. Boston, only about 50%. In Chicago, only about 55%. And these are pretty used mass transit systems. And yet we're not seeing the folks coming back why? You said, why is it? Right? So why are fewer people using mass transit? Well, there's more remote work. Upwards of 50% of folks, depending on which city you're in, are still working from home. It's a fear of crime. Some of that is real. Some of that is just what's being portrayed in the media. But it is a real thing. And as you mentioned, a fear of COVID that's still going on. And when you combine all of these things into one giant sort of envelope, it gets you to the ridership levels where we're only at about 50%, depending on which mass transit system you're actually using. Poppy. Your brain makes up for your lack of arrow drawing ability. I have Harry no, Anderson. I have no, look, <laughs> I prefer to type. It's easy enough to type out the slides, but drawing on the slides, I'm iffy on that, but I'll go to school. Thank for you, it. friend. I take the Thank subway. You. I'm a fan. Thank you. I do too. Okay. White Lotus fans, were your theories correct? Spoiler alert, I'm serious. Like, I don't know, turn down the volume or something. Don't turn off the TV. But we're going to break down the surprising finale with Will Sharp, who played Ethan. He is here for CNN This Morning Live. He's still alive. I was wrong, Will. I know. So. It's like in my brain now forever. The music like takes you right there, right? It's like Pavlov's dog. It's like yeah. White Lotus. Yeah. Okay, so listen, obviously, Caitlin and I are super fans. The second season of HBO's hit show, The White Lotus. Sorry. I We're mean, I'm just, it's, you're just speaking the truth. Yeah, it was a close last night. Uh, and we have to warn you because we're going to, this is a spoiler alert. So if you don't want to know what happened, I would say turn the volume down, okay? We don't want you to change the channel, just turn the volume down. So fans have spent the entire season theorizing and trying to figure out one question, who was that floating body? They finally got their answer, it was last night. You've had very bad luck. Best thing about luck is, it can always change. He's just so romantic. You're going to die. Okay. Who's going to so, die? Ah, Will Sharp's here. <laughs> he plays Ethan on Hi. The White Lotus. Hi. And uh, we should note that HBO is the unit, it's a parent company to CNN. Okay, so uh, Warner Brothers D Discovery. Um, wait a minute. Warner we Brothers Discovery, <laughs> we're in the same company. Let's get we're that We're distant straight. cousins. Yes. So thank you for joining us. So you said, I know that you thought that you, you predicted, you've been telling everybody that things are going to get messy. You said fans should expect uh -huh. fireworks. And there were fireworks. I have to say... I was wrong. This is a spoiler alert. I'm going to take close your ears. I thought that you were the killer. I did. Okay. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And I mean, I don't know what kind of conversations Mike had with the rest of the cast, but I remember, you know, him being very upfront with me towards the beginning about how he did want Ethan to be a kind of enigma 
you know, especially towards the beginning of the series and for it to be like an available theory that maybe he is going to be the killer. So I guess I was mindful of that in the playing of it whilst also having an eye on, you know, the long game of of how it really plays out. So you started the show and the cast does not know who the killer Mm -hmm. is or who dies. No, we did. We did. We had all seven scripts. Um, And so, yeah, we've been carrying those secrets for a while, um, I guess. And so in a way, it's a relief to be able to talk about it more freely now. Um, But yeah, wow, what a what a bold move on Mike's part. Am I missing something or I still don't know who the killer is? So, but I don't know if we should say. I don't, I don't think we should. I don't think we should say who the killer okay, so is. So we're not spoiling. Turn the volume it's, it's, back a, on. It's kind of a spoiler alert, but it's not. <laughs> but um, the twist is, is that the, it's a double thing because the killer ends up being something else as well, which I won't say. Yes. Right? So this yes. one, there's, a, there's a sort of, you know, double twist here. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, um, that's part of the beauty of it is that it plays out in a kind of complicated, tragicomic way. And it's kind of playful and bombastic, but also, you know, sad and poignant as well. And I think, yeah, as I say, I just think it's a very courageous move on Mike's part um, to go there. And it's one of the things I really admire about him. Sorry. Yes. If you haven't watched the show, what's so fascinating is it's kind of this idea, like they're in these amazing settings and it's like people go to paradise, but they still take their problems with them. Like it, it's talk about privilege, about class, about sex and all of that. I wonder what you thought of just like the themes for this season, because I know Mike White said it wasn't what he initially thought it was going to be. And he changed it based on the okay. setting. Yeah, so, I mean, I definitely think this season explores, you know, sexual politics um, and gender politics, too. I think the different ways in which men and women historically uh, can behave, for better or worse. Um, And and as you say, I think it's the Sicilian setting that informs a lot of that. And I remember him saying to me that one of the first inspirations for the story of this season was when he asked a local about the Testa di Moro, you know, those sculptures of heads that you see um, often in the show and that uh, Ethan and Harper have one in their bedroom. Um, And the story that is relayed in the show is is the actual backstory for those Testa di Moro. Um, So, yeah, I think think it's a a dark series. I think in a funny way, it's also romantic. I think Mike does throw some pieces of light in there and he explores the nature of relationships, but you know, without shying away from all the gnarliest, messiest, uh, most sort of complex um, places that a relationship can take you. Well, that, you're right. There's a lot of sex and there's a lot of naked nudity. <laughs> um, it's just, it is. I mean, I got to be honest. It's I'm, for, even for me. It's shocking. It's HBO. Right. It's got its start. It's HBO. It's, it's really great. Congratulations. Thanks. We love, we're big Congrats. fans. Congrats. Well, we love, we love the casting. We loved your character especially yeah. also. You'll be Ethan to us forever, I hope you oh, know. But. You. Yo, and also, okay. you and Theo James don't have accents on, accents on the show. They're American accents. And yeah. in person, you both have. Oh, my gosh. They're actors. They're I know, acting. but it's still, it's just, it's just kind of, <laughs> I get it. But, you know, I'm used to seeing them in, on the show and their character. Congrats, Ethan. Thank you. Thank Will you. Sharp. I know. Thank you. Ethan. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So sharp, Ethan. Same thing. Thank you. All right, ahead, we have a very special treat. In addition to White Lotus fangirling over here, fanboying, CNN Hero of the Year is going to join us live. That's next. 
I'm Nelly. And now, the 2022 CNN Hero of the Year is... Nelly, Nelly Chaboy. <laughs> it was the best moment. It was truly amazing. We were CNN's Hero of the Year named last night. Nelly Chaboy's nonprofit, Techlet Africa, has provided thousands of students across rural Kenya with access to computers. And in a very special moment, she brought her mom up on stage and sang with her. And now, in front of the whole world, I want to sing you this song one more time. Mukono wangu mdogo we, awezi kufanya kazi. Nikikuwa mkubwa we, nitakusaidia. Mutabu muzika Billy. And Nelly and her mother join us now. That moment. I'm so glad it was captured. Oh. It, you told us last night what the song meant. Can you tell, tell, share with our audience why that song is so special to the two of you? Because um, I, I saw how hard she was working. I really, I saw, like, she was working really hard. And so I could not do anything. I could not do anything about it. I was only four. Maybe I was only five. And so, but then she'll come home, sometimes even at midnight, like, just... And so I'll sing her the song, and then, and then she will light up. She will light up. She's exhausted. She's stressed, but she will oh. just light up. And that moment, I realized that um, that became a tradition. She, she comes home. We go to bed hungry sometimes. I sing her the song. She lights up. We live for another day. Can I just ask you? Yeah. I'm a total mama's boy, so I'm, this is for me. And I share everything with my mom. Why are you crying? Why Did am you I not cry- seen that moment? No, I am crying because she did not believe me. I kept singing it to her and she did not believe me. And, and so, and, and to be able to sing to her on such a global stage, and right now, even here at CNN this morning, is I told her that I'm going to show her the world, and she did not believe me. And, and she did not understand. She did not understand what was going on at the event. She was just like, oh, that's you, that's you. She did not understand. So when I sang to her, she was like, wait, what? what? Like, she kind of like, it dawned to her. It's like she got out to experience the whole moment. Yeah. And and so, yeah. <laughs> she she doesn't speak English, right? That's what we have. Yeah, she speaks Swahili. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you just ask her um, what that moment meant to her? Yeah. 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 She says that she just felt so warm. She felt so warm, and and she believes me now. That when I said like I was gonna show her the world, she she believes me now. I <laughs> know. <laughs> For a mother to see their child grow into what you are, is is beyond any mother's wildest dreams. I hope you know that, right? All we want for our children, I think, is just to be kind and happy. And not only are you those things, you have used your power to change this world. And then also, I, I think for her to be here with me, to be here with me, I, I think like so many people have lost their mothers and, and when they make it, their parents are not there. So I feel so lucky that she's here and she's able to share the moment with me. And we're so glad that you won and, and you have this $100,000 now to... Expand your work even even further than you already have in the, in the imprint that you've had. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's great. 
Aw. Dawn. Thank you. I, it's just, it's well, your just, mom You is. are amazing. I just, I just, I can't really. That's amazing. Congratulations. You know amazing mothers, don't you? I do. This is, and this is for, you did it for her, and this is her moment as yeah, well. As yeah. Yeah, she's my hero. Thank you, Nellie. Yeah, thank Thanks, you. Mom. Christina, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be right back. Oh, oh so God. great. I was I, wondering who that sorry. was. I'm showing Poppy and Don my pictures because it was a historic moment in the classic Army-Navy football rivalry, not just because it was my first time going, but for the first time in the 123 years that they've been playing each other, they went into overtime, not just overtime, double, double overtime. Double OT. Both sides then, you know, it had been a pretty quiet game. Then it was back-to-back -back touchdowns. Navy had a chance to win, but they wow. fumbled just shy of the goal line, if you see there. Oh, no. Everyone, I mean, it went nuts. Army, they got the ball back. They kicked a field goal for the victory. It was truly the game. The camaraderie there is amazing. It's the best experience ever. I think everyone Can I bring go. the kids next year, or is it too insane Your kids them? would love it. All right, we're they going. They would love it. We're going. Okay, see you tomorrow morning. <laughs> Newsroom is now. We're, on, we're still on TV, by the way. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.